0: Welcome back to Rings and Realms. It is time to discuss the season finale.
1: And I'm so glad I'm here in person because, my goodness, we have a lot to work through.
0: There is a lot to talk about. There's always been a lot to talk about in every episode, but there's an extra lot to talk about. So in I this hope segment.
1: you're comfortable. Hope you've got some snacks.
0: Absolutely. Might be a long one. Yeah. Let's dig in. before we get started here on Rings and Realms today, I have to tell you that we have a special circumstance here today. For the first time ever at Rings and Realms, we have a live studio audience present. So you may at some points hear sounds like clapping or laughter or perhaps hoots of derision. Who knows what's going to happen? But if you do... I just want you to know these are authentic people sitting here watching here today. Uh, so just be prepared uh, for that eventuality. Now, the first theme we're going to discuss today, I'm calling metal. M-E-T-T-L-E. And the idea here, of course, we're all about the, the metallurgy in this, uh, in this episode, right? And once again, I'm keying off the title, which is alloyed. Um, so I want to be thinking about how uh, Smithcraft is being used as a metaphor in this episode. Um, now, I want to go back to the alloyed name in particular um that is it's a it stands out in some ways because it's the the part of speech that the word is right it's not alloy which would suggest the 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 focus is on the you know the metal that is used as an alloy when it's mixed with another metal um nor is it like a present tense verb right talking about the process of mingling, though it might seem that that would be appropriate. It's alloyed. That is, it's referring in the past tense to something that has been mixed, something that has come together. And that, of course, as the title of the final episode of the season, is particularly interesting, I think, because we're seeing how a bunch of things come together um, and sort of work together. Now, of course, the most literal sense uh, in which alloyed is relevant, obviously, is the mixture of ores in the making of metal, and of course, in this case, the debate about how to utilize the one little nugget of silmer, of silmaril. listen to me, the one little nugget of Mithril that they have uh, in order to do what Celebrimbor wants to do, uh, right? Ultimately, of course, making the Elven Rings of Power. Um, But there are several ways in which this can be understood a little bit more metaphorically. One thing, which is both a metaphorical application of alloyed as well as a pun on the word, is its similarity with the word Allied or Allegiance, right? The joining together, not of metals, um, but of peoples and of groups of people. So we see, of course, you know the, the questions and issues of the of 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 the uh, allied state between the dwarves and the elves, between the Southlanders and the Numenorians, um, and there are lots of questions. As Celebrimbor is debating with Halbrand, right? The question is, you know, will an, a certain alloy strengthen the metal? Will it increase it? In doing so, it makes it less pure less valuable possibly weaker right the 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 exact consequences of adding an alloy of of alloying a metal is uncertain, right? Now, we see some positive examples of that even just within this episode. Nori and the Stranger, I think, we see a a, a kind of example of this, especially in where we see them at the end as they're going off together on their adventure, which is not just a journey, but an adventure because they're going together. And there, of course, we have a very mismatched couple, in a sense, right? This is not just... uh, It's not the same, very different, from if just Nori and Poppy were to go off together now. This is clearly an alliance. This is clearly a mixture of two very different things, and it's not clear what either one of them are going to do or are exactly setting out to do. And yet, we have every reason to to think, based on the shape of the story that we've seen from episode one and two all the way through to the end, that this alloy, this mixture of the two of them together, is going to make Uh, a stronger metal, or flexible, who knows exactly the properties of it, right? Um, But that they're going to come together in a special way that's going to create a combination that is different from what either one of them, and and sort of more than what either one of them could do together. There's another way in which this operates metaphorically, and that is in the connection between the seen and the unseen. Um, The unseen world and its relationship to the physical world is something which Adar first brings up, quoting Sauron. And then, of course, Celebrimbor brings up, quoting Sauron too, though he doesn't realize he's quoting Sauron. Um, And this, of course, is one of the things that really triggers Galadriel because she uh, retains a clear memory of what Adar told to her and realizes that he's running the Sauron script uh, there in Eregion, which seems to her, at least initially, alarming. Um, But again, um, the way that we have... What he's trying to accomplish, what his goal was that he was trying to accomplish up in the ice castle in the north, and then ends up uh, accomplishing more directly, apparently, right through the rings of power. That stuff is a mixture of the unseen and the seen. He wants to create a power not of the flesh but over the flesh. The power of the unseen world being brought into the physical world and exercised over the physical world so that that line between the unseen world and the seen world can be blurred and his power can be built in both realms and through both realms. So that's kind of the bigger picture um, alloyed issue that we see happening. Ultimately, that seems to be what Sauron is pointed to. And a big question that we're left with, how do the three rings relate to that. That idea was embedded in Celebrimbor's mind as he was preparing. Uh, How much is that still there? How much of that particular alloy are we seeing and will we see and what will be the consequences of it? How is that going to play out both for the wielders of those rings and for those around? How is this going to relate to the storyline of the Elves. But there's another element that I want to... Coming back to the metallurgy thing, um, I called this segment metal because it not only has to do with with the mixture of metals and the making of alloys, but another thing that I see happening a lot in this episode is testing, the, the refinement and testing of things, to test the metal. Uh, the strength of particular characters to, to, to test their tempers. How well are they composed? Are they going to break under strain? A lot of people are tested in this. Of course, we see Celebrimbor, with the advice of Halbrand, um, doing some... Trial and error, right? Experimentation by trial and error, trying to figure out, to test each different approach to see which one works, which, of course, results in explosions. I love the line about the mithril being a stubborn ore, and it has to be mixed properly. They're testing not just the metal itself, but trying, trying to figure out how to get it to become alloyed or allied with other metals, right? In the end, it becomes allied or alloyed, with the gold and silver from Galadriel's dagger. Now, I'm going to talk in a few minutes in the next segment about what that means to Galadriel, because that's a very big deal. On the one hand, it seems like quite a nice thing. The purest possible gold and silver, the gold and silver of Valinor. What could be better as a base metal to combine with the mithril? But then again, given the symbolic significance of that dagger throughout this show, the way it has been attached, uh, tied to vengeance, and the idea of Galadriel's single-minded quest of revenge against Sauron, that's never really been a great thing for Galadriel. And that's going to form the foundation of the Three Rings? I wonder exactly how that's going to pan out. But there are other ways in which we see this kind of testing, this kind of tempering of people's characters in this episode. Uh, The stranger in his conflict with the three mystics, right? We have him being tested. Is he going to believe them? Is he going to submit to what they tell him? He is confused about who he is. He clearly doesn't want to be evil, he doesn't want to be the bad guy that they claim that he is. He's bewildered by this, but all along he's been worried. He doesn't know who he is, and he's been worried that he might be a peril. That he, he, And he sees now that he definitely is bringing danger to the Harfoots before he left. So he is being tested, and Nori, of course, coming to him, we'll talk about that more later, is an enormous moment of testing for his character, for his choices. Elrond is going to get tested, interestingly, by Galadriel herself, almost as soon as she arrives. They have a, a, a sort of makeup meeting, and he makes a promise to her. Elrond is big on the oaths. He swears an oath to her almost immediately that he's going to trust her in the future. He's not going to do again what he did before and distrust her and go along with that kind of an exile plan. He's going to trust her and believe in her. And she calls him to follow through on that right away. Before we get to the end of this same episode, she is calling on him to trust her in a situation that he doesn't understand, where something is happening that he doesn't get and he doesn't know about. And she calls upon him to trust her. And he says, this is hard. And of course, she says, well, yeah, you know. Of of course it's hard, right? Um, That moment, by the way, at the end of the episode, I'll talk about that here and there throughout this episode. I found that confusing, where Galadriel's mind is there. Why is it that she's going along with the forging of the Elven Rings of Power when she seemed to be running towards the Tower in order to stop them doing it? She seems to have some plan. Her asking Elrond to trust her Sounds to me like an implicit request that she's asking us to trust her as well. I'm willing, but I feel that I'm being tested by that too. Of course, Halbrand also is being tested uh, by Galadriel as she's trying to figure out what's going on with him. She becomes suspicious of him from the moment she hears Celebrimbor Quoting Sauron, she can see that something is wrong and she begins to suspect Halbrand and begins to, to test and to probe at him until she finally confronts him. And this, of course, leads to the testing of Galadriel, the strongest testing that she has undergone yet during that psychic Temptation uh, vision that she has um, under, apparently, Sauron's control. Now, we'll talk about that a good deal more in the next segment. But certainly, this is a major testing moment for Galadriel's character, following right up on the change of heart that we saw in episode 7. She seemed to turn the corner. She's doing much better. She's talking about Estelle and she's submitting and she's giving up her sword. Lots of great things happening in episode 7. So what happens in episode 8? Extreme testing of her character is what happens in episode 8. And as I say, we'll see how we think she emerges. The last point I want to mention is those forging of the three rings. The three rings are sitting there What's going to happen with them? Who's going to take them? What are they going to do with them? What kind of temptations are they going to be subject to? How is that going to set them up for their stories and the other rings of power? And then, of course, eventually the revelation of Sauron's one ring. The rings themselves are going to be agents of testing and temptation. We know this all the way up through Galadriel's meeting with Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring when he offers her the one ring and she passes the test, and refuses it. I think we're going to get lots of anticipations of different kinds of that moment. So the culmination of this episode is with those three rings, which are the beginning of what are really going to be an important testing ground for more than one character in the seasons to come. Okay, so let's remember that the light and dark theme is the one that's started by Finrod. It's not just about things being sometimes light and sometimes dark or even the visualizations of light and darkness on the screen. That We get a lot of those, too, sometimes in service of this theme. But the primary light and darkness theme is that one established by Juvenile Goadriel and Finrod at the beginning of the show. Galadriel's question about how do you know which light to follow, the true light or the false light? How can you tell the difference? And Finrod's answer, by touching the darkness, you can tell the difference. Now, in this episode, we get a couple things. I want to talk about... The Stranger's storyline and where we can see the light and darkness darkness theme coming into play for The Stranger and then of course I want to talk about Galadriel because that story which began with Finrod back in episode one comes to, well, I won't say it's completion she still clearly has far to go but that plainly wraps up this theme for this season as we go straight back to that scene uh, in this episode. Now uh, let's talk about The Stranger well less The Stranger than Slim Shady and the Death Moth Lady so um, I want to look at his confrontation with them we do see lots of visual light and darkness right we've got the fire breathing all over the place then he takes down the fire and we get dar- sudden darkness which is of course under the circumstances encouraging and should remind us of course of the fire pit when he first landed in his friendly meteor and then The shining white light that comes out of the staff that he has taken up, that is clearly an important turning point for his character. And then the, well, I don't want to call it an obliteration, maybe a banishment, not sure what was going on. That they were a false light, are proven a false light, is clear. But notice that they are a light. Not only are they wearing white, but they glow when the light it's not just they don't they're not just illuminated by the light. They themselves glow from within, though they glow with that sickly corpse light, that pale, that creepy, pale, dead, bleached bone white, and we see the this wraith form underneath. Is that their true form? Are we seeing them now as they really are? Um, A false light revealed to be what it is, this not just a distraction, but an actual force of destruction that was trying to take him away. He has made his choice. The choice, is he going to follow them or is he going to oppose them? And of course, it's Nori and the other Harfoots finding him and attempting to help him that Clearly leads him to turn the corner. And again, the problem is not a moral dilemma on his point. The stranger's not sitting there saying, Well, gosh, would I like to be Sauron? Does that sound like the career opportunity for me? Maybe I should talk to my guidance counselor. That's not the stranger's issue. The question is, he doesn't know. Who is he really? What is the direction he is supposed to go? Am I good? Or am I a apparel? This is not just a question that Nori is asking about him. It's a question that he is asking about himself. And what we see, I think, when he meets Slim Shady and the Death Moth Ladies is that we, he, doesn't, he doesn't know what he is. He doesn't know who he is. And he is afraid to discover that he is not who he would want to be, this sort of division within him. What is his destiny? Where is he supposed to go? How can he tell the difference between the direction he should go to the true light and to the false light that could lead him into darkness? And when he confronts them, what does he say? From shadow you come to shadow I bid you return. Um, And so he banishes them uh, into the darkness from which they came. They are not the true light. He is not going to go in that direction. Except, yeah, actually he is. He is called in that direction, but not to follow them. He and Nori are going to sail off on their little metaphorical boat, right, following the true light into the east. Just as, notice, Sadak, in his death scene, looks at the, staring off to the east at the sunrise, watching the sun come up. And that's, of course, where Nori and the stranger are going to be going towards the sun, the rising of the sun, not the false light of the death moth ladies. One brief mention before we turn to Gal- Galadriel and that's Aearian, Um, in her strange conversation with Tar Palantir right before his death. When he grabs her arm, rather startlingly, and says to her, I know what you have been doing in the dark of the night. He's talking to young Muriel. He thinks he's talking to young Muriel. The conversation as he goes on, what he continues to say, shows he's not really aware of his surroundings. He doesn't know who she is. He's talking to young Muriel, which, of course, leads me to wonder, what was young Muriel doing in the dark of the night? I don't know. Um, but Arian, of course, for all we can see, for all that she can see, in context, he's talking to her. It looks exactly as if he's talking to her. And despite the fact that we learn later that he wasn't, she can't help but freeze and apply that to herself. And neither can we, especially since we know that Tar Palantir, the old king, is foresighted. He has made prophecies. And we have already seen, we have just recently seen, one of his prophecies come true, that Muriel would find nothing but darkness in Middle-earth. And now here he is... Not making a prophecy to Arian, but claiming knowledge of her. And the knowledge that he claims of her involves her being surrounded in darkness. All that I'm saying about this scene is that we are prompted to ask the question, is Arian falling into darkness? What is her light? Is she going to follow the light? Is she going down a false path? We don't know much. We have very little actual data about Aearian's future, or even what's been going on with her. We left her behind in episode 5, weeping in the street in Numenor, and we haven't seen her again until this episode. So to a certain extent, it's important for us even to wonder what she been doing since then? Have her thoughts been getting darker? Is she headed down some darker path? These are the questions that his, his little, well, not prophecy, his statement there... ...seem to invite us to ask. And it sets me up not to see what choices she's making right now... ...but to wonder about the choices that are going to lie ahead of her character... ...as we move forward into season two. But let's talk about Galadriel. When she is confronting Sauron... ...Sauron does his psychic temptation with her. And the first place that he brings her is right back to where we started with this theme, the very hillside in Valinor, where she first had this conversation with her brother Finrod. And her brother Finrod reappears to her to give her again something very similar to the original advice. Except, of course, what's his advice this time? He praises her, and then he tells her, what you should do is keep on touching the darkness, right? Touch the darkness once more. And that is clearly not good advice. We have seen her touch the darkness in episode six and then turn in episode seven. And she's been, she's been getting better for a whole episode before we get to this point. It is very plain. One of the functions of this early scene is not only to recall that old scene, but to prompt us to be wary. We know she is being tested. She knows intermittently in that sequence that she's being tested and the question, is she going to follow this fake Valinorian light? She's surrounded by the very light of the trees itself in seeming, and yet clearly that is the false light. Now, Sauron, when we hear from Sauron in the, on the raft segment of the psychic temptation, when Sauron tells us about his own experience, he says that when Morgoth was gone, the, his iron fist open from around his neck, that is Morgoth's fist, around Sauron's neck, and he was suddenly free, and he felt the light of the one. Well, that sounds good. Who knows? Maybe Sauron has turned over a new leaf. Maybe he turned over a new leaf a long time ago. Notice, by the way, what we're being asked to believe. Not that Sauron has repented lately, but that Sauron repented way back at the very end of the first age, very beginning of the second age, that he has been good all along, through the whole Second Age. This is his claim. And he follows this up by speaking, to, by making her feel heard, by making her feel seen. I alone can see your light, he says. And this is important to a Galadriel character who has been in a role kind of like the, the Greek prophetess Cassandra so far in this season. Cassandra, of course, was famous. For always speaking the truth, being able to foretell the future with accuracy, but cursed so that no one will ever believe her, no matter what she says. And Galadriel was in a role very similar to that. She was right. Sauron was on the move. Uh, Nobody believed her. No one would listen to her, but she wasn't wrong. And here is Sauron himself saying, I alone see your light. Gilgalad was accusing her of being a force of darkness in the elf community right and she is now being told no 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 i get you i feel you you are the light well this all sounds great how do we know that sauron is being deceptive here how where can we tell that this is not what it seems that this is a false light and not a true light that he is showing her and the answer is in the connection between her and the light he is he identifies her with the light but then he goes on to say, I'm going to bind the light to myself and power to you. That binding of the light to himself is fairly ominous. On the one hand, the, the speaking of binding is an explicit marital it, resonance that he's, they're going to bind themselves to each other. They're going to be Mr. and Mrs. Sauron ruling Middle-earth, right? A nice, happy couple in global domination. This seems to be his proposal. Uh, would he give her... This, of course, raises the obvious question. Is he going to give her a wedding ring? If so, how's that going to work out? Discuss. But in any case, um, this is clearly the possessiveness of his desire for the light, his claiming of the light, like... Melkor, not only like Melkor, but uncomfortably like Feanor himself, making the light of the Silmarils and claiming them and swearing that oath to possess them, which caused so many problems, even though Celebrimbor doesn't talk about that part of Feanor's career as much as he talks about other things. The possessiveness of his relationship with the light is the clear tip-off. And remember, she told him, back in episode three, that word came up. She invited Hal Brand to bind himself to her in order to save his life. Her gesture there was an act of generosity to a virtual stranger that she didn't know and had no real reason to value. But she was trying to oppose the darkness, and to save his life. And now he's reaching out to her in what seems to be a reciprocal gesture. Now he's trying to save her, to promote her, and yet it's on his terms. And his power is going to be bound to her, which probably has more than one sense to it. Granting her power, yes, but also binding him within her power as well. When he, when she finds out and when she clearly decides that his light is a false light is when he says that he sees no difference between saving people and ruling people. Clearly it's the same thing. He's the one who knows best if he's in control and he is, has everything ordered as he pleases. Well, obviously that's what healing middle earth looks like That, that idea of him as he or of Middle Earth, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on, is this is its manifestation and she sees it below the raft in the water she sees the reflection of Sauron and herself side by side and for a moment it looks almost like this is the temptation almost as if it were a kind of a fantasy of her own as if she were project projecting this idea and wondering contemplating the possibility of joining together with him before she rejects it i don't think it is i think that that is clearly a representation of her perception that it is a false light. Remember the light up above and darkness down below trend that has been consistent in this theme from the beginning. The very fact that she is sort of envisioning it in that moment as these two sort of radiant figures down in the darkness, down beneath. It is clear now to her that that is a false light trying to draw her down into the darkness that will inevitably engulf you as finrod described and she rejects it she is clear now she has already touched the darkness she does not need to do it again thank you to know which light is the true and which the false light and of course she's pulled out of the river Sorry, before that, she starts sinking down, right? She has this vision of herself sinking down, just like we saw her sinking, sinking before. Down into the darkness, it looks like she has failed. Now she's being overwhelmed by the darkness. She chose wrong in rejecting Sauron, but it's a lie. She's rescued by Elrond, and when she's pulled out of the water, it's not the dark depths that she has fallen down to. It's a stream. She's in like six inches of water, and she's pulled up into the bright sunlight there, in Eregion, right near the forges, right? And and it's, it's Elrond, her friend, who rescues her. And how does she identify him? How does he correctly identify himself to her? By the recollection of an act of kindness that she showed to him in befriending him all of those years ago, not unlike her act of kindness to Halbrand on the Raft, whom she didn't know at that time and had no reason to put herself into jeopardy for. So that reversal at the end, the friend pulling her out, she has triumphed. She has made progress. She is not in the place of confusion and uncertainty that she was before. So we'll see where she's going. Her relationship with the rings of power at the end is still really uncertain. I don't know what it means. I'm not sure where she's going. I love Galadriel's trajectory, all the way up until about five minutes before the end of the episode. And then I get confused. Why does she now suddenly want to make the Rings of Power? Why is she coveting the Rings of Power? What's she planning to do with those? She tells Elrond to trust her. I guess I have to trust her. Um, but it threw me off a little bit because the rest of her story, the way that this light and darkness theme is, arises at the beginning and resolves itself at the end felt like it works very well together. And then I just have this little question mark at the end. So I guess we'll have to wait to see how that works out. As we finish up the friendship theme here at the end of season one, I have to pause for a second just to to give some serious kudos to this show. This show has done something which I don't remember seeing Anywhere, and as long as I can remember, not only does this show celebrate friendship, like that really put a spotlight on the relationship between friends who are not romantically engaged with each other at all, um, it does it more. There are more friendships, I think twice as many friendships at least, that are really spotlighted than we have romantic relationships at all. Um, so often, um, in in the context of you know Hollywood, whether it's films or, or TV shows, romantic love is the only kind of love that matters, um, and it seems almost as if it's the only kind of love that filmmakers will assume that we're going to be able to invest in um, as an audience member. And so sometimes you can see, especially in adaptations, where a friendship, what was a friendship in the book, has been either transformed into. A romantic relationship, or being given like romantic overtones, at least. Um, and not only has this show resisted that; it's really gone in the other direction. And I find it immensely refreshing. I think friendship is, is is enormously important, and it's a particularly important theme in Tolkien. It's one of the reasons why I began looking at that when I was seeing the friendships that were being emphasized, especially between Galadriel and Elrond, and then between Nori and Poppy uh, in those in, in in episode one, very at the beginning at the early beginning of the season. But, you know, looking back now at the run of the whole season, it's nothing short of remarkable how this theme has been emphasized. Uh, And I think that that's, again... Like, uh, hats off to this show if for no other reason than uh, accomplishing that, really showing how well that can work. I think also of how many people I've talked to who have said that many of the friendships in this show are their favorite things. Right? I mean, how many of you out there love the friendship between Elrond and Durin more than anything else in the show, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. It's really great. And so to, to show that they not only chose to do that, but the way they made that work, I'm, I really, really admire that. Um, so let's look at some of the ways in which friendship gets um, gets invoked and discussed in this episode. I want to start with um, Sadek's death, right? When Sadik is dying, um, the way that the others, they're sad, right? And you've got Poppy coming up and hugging him, which is a really touching moment. Um, and then his saying, I'm going to sit here a spell and watch the sunrise now we're going to talk about sadoc's death um uh, connected to several of the themes that we're going to be looking at actually all of the rest of the themes that we're going to be looking at but um but that moment when he's turning to look at the sunset and then what do they do what do the other harfoots do they don't they don't lament their focus isn't on their own grief though they are sad what do they, they sit there With him, shoulder to shoulder, not looking at him, not thinking about themselves, but shoulder to shoulder with Saddock watching the sunrise for the last time that he'll see the sunrise. Um, Again, he says he's going to go, he's going off trail, as if he's going off on his own. But we see how emphatically that's not true. He's chosen the wrong metaphor um, for his death in that sense. Um, He is not going off trail, and he's certainly not being left behind by the rest of the Harfoots. And that's a really beautiful moment there uh, in that episode. But speaking of the Harfoots, while we're here, Nori has been at the center of a lot of the friendship action uh, in this season. uh, And I've really loved all of those relationships. Of course, her relationship with the stranger has been premised on friendship. Um, she talk- will come back to Nori, of course, when we talk about the fate theme, as we've been doing so frequently during season one. Um, and there is that element of fate and calling and destiny that um, that is connected to her relationship with the stranger. But she very much does not just see him as like a job, right, as a calling that she has to per- some duty or uh, or mission that she has to perform first and foremost. He is her friend, and she insists that she is his friend. Um, now again, we went through some tension, right when she was, uh, when she was giving into fear in episode, at the end of episode five, and then we skipped six with them, and then in episode seven, when we returned to them. Um, but we see that friendship reasserted, and we see her coming to help him and informing him. Right, that she is his friend and that he is her friend. And then, of course, their friendship is what is going to bring them together at the end as she is going to go on that adventure. I kind of love that line about how, um, you know, uh, it's just a journey if you're by yourself, right? But it's an adventure uh, if you can share it. The way that their friendship transforms um, the quest that's going to come, as it indeed transforms this calling that she has um the connection the establishment of their friendship which really took shape in episode three when he first joined their caravan and helped them to push the wagon um when largo couldn't because of his ankle um is now sort of bearing fruit and she is i've been anticipating nori leaving the pack right separating from the rest of the harfoots but it ends up happening in this beautiful way that i did never i never did anticipate um I was talking about this a bit earlier today uh, in my Twitter broadcast when I was saying that I've been thinking... At, at first, I was expecting from Nori's trajectory... Um, something like a Disney princess plot line like Moana or The Little Mermaid, right, where you have like the one visionary uh, girl who wants more than her family know and are content with, right, they're content in their little world, but she wants more and she goes out adventuring in the great wide world and then she comes back and transforms home right, that's a, a common shape uh, in a, a, you know, in that sort of Disney movie plot line um, and I thought that that might be a, the, not exactly like that but that might be the direction right she meets the stranger and then she's going to go off uh, on some adventure you know mission quest thing with him right and um, she's going to then be you know but then she's going to return and then she's going to tell them like you know what the birds learn when they're on their you know migrations right you know the stuff that she was saying to her mom Um, but that's not what we saw instead we saw the stranger join with them instead of her leaving Um, and the whole community kind of growing and progressing and growing together, not only with each other, but with the stranger as well. Um, And now when she is going to go off with the stranger, it's not, you know, leaving behind her stick-in-the-mud family, right, to go off and, and explore the new horizons. She goes off because her family acknowledges not only this desire and destiny in her, but also her friendship um, and the importance of that friendship, that it's, it would not be right for her to not go with her friend, for her to abandon her friend just in order to stay with them. But of course poised against her friendship with the stranger, which leads the two of them away at the very end of the season is her friendship with Poppy. Right? And that has been really kind of the bedrock of that whole plot line. I mean, the Harfoots... Poppy and Nori's friendship is, has like been like the core of the entire um, Harfoot plot line, I think, to this point, and and we see um, the tearful farewell right when Poppy comes. and I have to admit, I was surprised. I expected Poppy to go with them, um, and instead we got a to me kind of surprising separation between Poppy and Nor- and Nori. Um, superficially, like if you look at it from one angle it looks like, like, you could make an argument and say, well, look, Nori is choosing the stranger over Poppy, right? She and Poppy are separating, and Nori's going with the stranger instead. Um, but that does not at all feel like the right way to respond to that. Instead, Nori and Poppy's friendship, that's the foundation. That's the baseline, right, from which all of her strength comes, and we can see that, you know, Poppy's own integration into the rest, like, why has Poppy not been left behind herself in the past? It seems to have a lot to do with Nori's friendship with her and Nori's bringing her into her own family, the sort of pseudo adoption that we see Poppy have in the Brandyfoot family when Poppy lost all of her family, right? And now, having been brought it through that friendship. With Nori, that's now kind of bearing this sort of more mature fruit in her, in Poppy's more thorough integration into the Harfoot Clan, right? As um, uh, as she is now not officially the trailfinder, right? I can foresee some. Um, Harfoot politics <laughs> perhaps coming up uh, with Malva, And is Melva going to be okay with that, right? I think there's going to be some tension there perhaps. But but certainly we, we, we had it foreboded that Poppy is going to be an important part, even stepping into a sort of leadership role perhaps uh, in the Harfoot community. And that'll be interesting to see. And I expect that Nori and Poppy are going to come together and that once again their friendship is going to be very important to how things work out down the road. I don't know how yet, but I confidently expect that that's going to happen. So we'll see how that plays out. We also got a reunion of long-estranged friends in this episode, and that's Galadriel and Elrond, who haven't seen each other since episode one. Um, And their friendship was one of the cornerstone friendships, one of the things, as I mentioned, that introduced the theme to us way back in episode one. Um, And they return now. They get their... um, uh, They reestablish their connection, and there's an apology, right? Elrond apologizes to her for not believing in her, and he promises that he's going to trust her from now on. Her response, I love when she talks about drowning, right? She says, I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, come all this way just to drown now. I didn't come through this bitter ocean just to drown now, nor to see you drown now. And I was particularly interested to see where that is going to go. I think that's not paid off yet uh, in this episode. I think that's a setup for what's going to come later. Um, There are a couple things that I think are, are to be paid off still with Elrond and Galadriel's friendship. One is that, where she says she's not meaning to see Elrond himself drown. And I think we're seeing him... There are a couple things that are having him already on the edge of drowning. Um... I think that, I'll talk about this more when I discuss the hope theme uh, later on, Um, but I think that we see Elrond not on a really positive path here in how he's, even though his intentions are very good uh, in trying to help the elves and to prevent the mysterious diminishing of the elves. Um, uh, He is, I think, a bit at sea. And there is even, as I was suggesting last time, indications that his friendship with Durin even though it's awesome and we all love his friendship with Durin, um, there seems to be a very real chance that his friendship with Durin is going to be the very best of reasons to do the wrong thing. I think we're already seeing that with the dwarf formerly known as Prince Durin in the last episode. Um, But, um, so again, I expect that to sort of pay off a little bit further down the road. However, um, the other thing that I expect that we haven't seen pay off yet, but I'm expecting to still, is the promise, the oath, that Elrond swore in episode one, when he said to Galadriel that if she turned out to be right about Sauron still being there, and, uh, and you know, that that if remember, he was very extreme, right? If anything of what you fear turns out to be true, then I will never rest in Middle-earth again until I've, you know, so he he swears to go along with that and to follow what she was doing and to, to pursue her quest until the end. Um, I think it's pretty clear that the framework of that oath is now to be invoked, right? I don't know that she'll invoke it explicitly, um, but I I doubt he will forget it. So both of those things, I think, between the two of them um, are likely to come through. We got one reference. At the very end of the episode, when she is doing that kind of puzzling thing where she seems to suddenly turn around from rushing up to stop the forging of the Rings of Power to suddenly being like, let's forge more Rings of Power, something's happening there that I don't really understand yet. Um, But as that's happening, when that shift occurs, she turns to Elrond and invokes his promise to trust her. And he says... Uh, kinda hard under these circumstances with no information. And she's like, Yep, it's tough, right? Deal with it. And but she she just she just invokes it, right? And says, Yep, real promises are tough to keep. So there you go. Let's let's move on. Um again, I don't know what she's doing. Um I don't know why I feel like I'm being called upon to trust her too, but maybe I should. Um, since I it seems to me that that reestablishment of that friendship I think is a really good thing. And I, I like and believe in the trust that the two of them have or seem to be reestablishing for each other there at the end. So um, I'm ready for that to be my guide and to trust her and see what she's up to. But I have to admit, I have my doubts, as I'll discuss a little bit later on. Um, finally, of course, and I believe this is the last time, I will have to raise this issue... Um, I am feeling triumphant, celebratory. In fact, it may be the only thing that really made me feel celebratory. Like, absolutely. Well, no, the stranger in the Harfoots, too. But um, uh, Elrond and Halbrand are permanently friend-zoned. We no longer have to worry that Elrond... Elrond, I did it again. (laughs) Go, they're permanently friend zoned too, which is fortunate. I think we can all agree. I misspoke. Halbrand and Galadriel. We no longer have to worry that Halbrand and Galadriel are going to make out. I am so glad for this. That is, oh man. Yeah. I think we can all agree that that is a great relief. Uh, to, I, this has been weighing on me now. Um, and after confidently. Uh, though speculatively friend zoning them in the last couple episodes. Delighted to see that pan out. And that was one of my primary thoughts at the end of that episode was at least I can stop worrying about that. I hope. Um, now, the last friendship I wanted to talk about, though, was Alendo and Muriel. They only got that one brief scene, really, um, when they were speaking in the hold of the ship. And it was, on the one hand, another really touching moment. The two of them have been allies. Um, we have seen them get to know each other better. It was clear in their first discussion back in episode three, um, when she's asking him about his name and what it means that she does not know him. Well, she has to inquire about who he is. Um, So he's relatively unknown to her there at the beginning, um, but especially through their trip to Middle Earth together. But even before that, he is working with her in preparing the expedition to Middle Earth. Um, The two of them are getting to know one another better. And now Uh, Him leading her by the arm, um, his, um, you know, being there for her to support her, their pledge of support to one another, his pledge of support to her, and her, she's his monarch or his future monarch in any case. So their friendship can't be exactly smoothly reciprocal, right? They can't just be pals because she's going to be his queen, or at least they both are under the belief that that's what's going to happen. Um, And so, uh, but I think she says as much as is appropriate and permissible for a monarch to say to a subject about how she's going to support him and how she wants to be there for him. Um, He's saying this to her in support for the struggle that is to come for her as she returns to Numenor and her blindness is revealed and the difficulties that's likely to lead her into She, for him, on a much more personal level, knowing how he's struggling with grief for what he believes to be the death of his son, and which, of course, we can't disprove because we didn't get to see the horse rescue him in this episode like we were hoping to do. But still, um, nevertheless, Linda would have had the chance to know about that anyway. But one last thing I want to emphasize in that scene. It's not just a moment where we see the building of that friendship, we also get a return to the significance of his name. And the name Elendil means, as he translates, when he gives the politically correct translation of his name, one who loves the stars, not wrong, that is a way to translate that name. Um, Because, of course, the Eldar is the Elvish word for elves, which means the the people of the stars. Um, That's what the the elves are called. Um, So, yeah, you can take that L element in his name and translated as star, and so that's, that's maybe what it means. Um, but, but again, he was being politically correct there. It's dangerous to just walk around being like, yep, my name is Friend of the Elves. That's who I am. Like, you become unpopular swiftly in Numenor if you talk like that. And he's clearly being very cautious. Um, and she pushes on it. But he, and he kind of maintains his plausible deniability about his name meaning elf friend, even though she seems to be kind of fishing. This is all back in episode three, remember. But now in episode eight, he brings it up again, and he brings it up in this sort of confessional mode, right? Almost as if to make up for not having told her the truth when she was fishing the first time, because he didn't trust her. He didn't know if he was going to get in trouble if he admitted that his name meant elf friend. But now he knows. Now they both know that they're really of the faithful, those who follow the old ways of Numenor, as is very politically unpopular uh, in Numenor right now. And he, opened, he makes himself vulnerable to her by admitting, yeah, my name actually means elf friend. Um, and that idea of elf friendship obviously ties into this whole friendship um, theme and I think goes to help to show us that there's more here than just the personal relationship between individual people right it's not just about two people spending a lot of time together and liking one another's company there's much more to friendship than that um and this of course is illustrated in Elendil's own case um one of the things I was wondering about him in this episode I was hoping we would see more of him as we saw at least a little bit um and I was wondering how his experience in Middle-earth would impact his attitude towards the, towards the faithful. Um, he was very he's wishing that he hadn't picked up Galadriel, and he was definitely feeling not very friendly towards Galadriel personally at the end of the episode as he was essentially blaming her for his son's death. And so I was wondering, was that going to spill over? Was this going to push him, maybe not all the way into Farazhan's camp, but in that direction? I didn't, you know, that was the question that I had in in seeing how things were going to unfold in this episode. Instead, we have him reaffirming his elf friendship, despite the fact that he has kind of defriended the only elf he's ever met, right? Um, and that really speaks to something, I think. It speaks to what it means to be an elf friend, and therefore, potentially, to what friendship itself means. Again, it's not just about being with somebody and enjoying their company. It's about this deeper commitment. Um, and that, I think, again, when we think back to the other friendships, that's also what it's about. It's not like with going all the way back to Sadek there, um, watching his last sunrise. It's not about, you know, oh, yeah, I really like Sadik and enjoy his company. They are committed. They're going to be with him no matter what. They're not going to... They're not going to be selfish in that moment. They're going to focus on him and they're going to do what's right because they're committed to him. Nori is committed to the stranger. She and Poppy have a commitment to each other that's going to transcend their separation of distance that apparently we're going to see in season two. Um, So I think it really begins to point to how the kind of love that we see between friends, that what friendship means, again, is more than just these are the people I hang out with and kind of like, right? There's something much deeper there. And I think that Elrond's, Elrond, Elendil's name uh, that points to the elf friendship is really the thing that illustrates this, I think, most clearly. As we said in the last episode, the Stranger has really become one of the focal points of the healing theme throughout this show. He's been almost identified with healing. Uh, he scared off the wolves, which was a little bit different, but everything else that he's done, um, the magic that he's performed, his spectacular feats have been associated with healing and renewing. Um, so I was really interested to see The Stranger's role in healing. We ended with a wounded Harfoot near to death, right? Sadak was bleeding out from his gut wound there at the end of the episode. And there was a moment, of course, when I was expecting to see the stranger intervene. Now, keep in mind, you may remember I was saying way back after episode one and two that I was expecting to see the stranger heal uh, Largo's ankle which he never did, right? Largo's ankle just kind of eventually got better, right? Turned out, I guess it was a sprain and not a break after all. Made it sound like a break because the stick broke, right? But um, apparently not a break, and he healed. So actually, that was something already that was sort of interesting to see him not intervene in that way. But it was not just that he, like, failed to or we did not see him follow through on this. He exchanged this look with Sadak, where it seemed clear that he understood Sadik was not looking to be healed. Sadek was ready. He was ready to go off trail. Um, and, of course, the line about his reunion with his dead wife, whom we saw, that really tender moment um, of his recollection of her back in episode four, it was really a beautiful moment. Um, and, of course, going to be important, I think, uh, a character in this show, this second-age show, who is comfortable with his own death, and reconciled to his own passing is kind of a big deal uh, and a really, really good sign. That's That's a good look. For Sadak and for the Harfoots, right there. Um, and again, I felt that the Stranger picked up on that. And so his his lack of healing, and by not physically healing Sadak, enabling um, the, this sort of the larger, you know, Sadak's own uh, release and healing, and that beautiful moment of him there with the other Harfoots, looking out to to see the sunrise again. Right, that it was, you know, the sunrise, not like the sunset, which was uh, the the moment of his passing, which seemed again to be another. Very encouraging, very hopeful sign there. So, uh, so yeah, so my, my first point is about how the, the healing motif, I thought, very significantly did not come up uh, in that one episode. And I thought that that was really interesting. But, of course, there's a lot of the healing stuff that we see in the uh, Galadriel and Halbrand plot line. Of course Howbrand's need for healing is the entire pretense that kicks off that whole storyline here in episode eight as as Howbrand uh, is slumping over his saddle that that shot of you know, Galadriel riding, and then over her shoulder, you see the nearly comatose form of, of poor Halbrand, who really has done a bang up job uh, uh, riding hard with his septic wound, but is clearly near the end of his uh, road there. Um, anyway, so the, 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 the healing of Halbrand um, was the beginning. And I, I loved, by the way, how that was brought to Celebrimbor specifically. It wasn't just like, oh, we hear that there are healers here, right? She comes to Celebrimbor and asks him to intervene. So I go back to the conversation that we had last week about healers and artificers. Um, Celebrimbor is their greatest artist, and he also seems to be, in some sense or other, sort of in charge of the healing, too. At least that's what Galadriel seemed to me to imply. Still not sure of the mechanism there. Not sure how that works. But that connection um, seemed fairly plain. Um, But, of course we also get the healing brought up by Sauron when he is revealed, right? When he confronts Galadriel in what is presumably her own mindscape there. Um, And we get reiterated what we learned from Adar back in episode six, that Sauron sees, he understands his mission, right? His, his, uh, plan to dominate the world and bring order to it and rule it, which he says are the same thing, right? Bringing order to something and ruling it. Um, this is this, this is healing. The thing that was added to that, so in, to some extent we just got that reiterated, which again confirms that Adar knows what he's talking about, right? Um, uh, and I'm beginning to believe more and more of what Adar tells me, actually, because so much of what he said has been confirmed. But, um... There was a one thing that was added in addition to just that recapitulation. What was also added was Sauron talking about his own healing. When Morgoth was destroyed when Morgoth was was defeated at the end of the First stage, He describes his own liberation, right? That he felt like that you know the, the Iron Hand was released from his neck and that he was free for the first time and found the One again. And he talks about the light, you know, when the sun first rose and and it was all new and glorious and wonderful, right? This sort of renewal of his own life. And so by implication, he seems to be extending. And well, no, not even by implication. He says explicitly that it's his mission to extend that, right? He wants to heal the damage that he helped to do, right? So just as he has achieved this release from the the power, the grip of evil upon him, he wants to cleanse Middle Earth uh, from that. Um, so we got more, the, the way that that was connected to his own experience, I thought was was interesting. Notice also how that sequence, especially his reference to the sun, Uh, is interestingly at odds with, well, not at odds with, but it's very different from Adar's perspective, right? Adar is looking at the sun and enjoying the sun and appreciating the sun but also looking forward to making the sun go away, right? That conversation that he has with the orcs, which is, of course, because it's at our creepy, where he exposes the orc's arm and makes him blister in the sun and everything while he's having this polite conversation. Um, remember, in that conversation, he is saying the sun is going to go away, and when it does, he's afraid he's going to lose the capacity to enjoy it right he knows the orcs can't and he says i wish that you could enjoy the sun instead of being in excruciating pain right now but um uh, but and he thinks that he's going to lose that capacity so that that same capacity to enjoy the sun to appreciate the sun is what uh sauron says that that he gained he regained right just as adar is losing it sauron said that he he gained that he regained that uh when morgoth was defeated i um and this will be a running theme. I'm not sure I believe everything that Sauron tells me. Sauron is a liar and is pretty famous about that. Um I don't really believe uh that his repentance was genuine, that the, the this perspective that he's describing um is real and authentic. And I think we can see an image of well, not an image of that, a hint of that, at the very end in that final shot, when he is he goes to Mordor, the new home where Adar has made the sun go away, right? And instead of Coming to this place and being like, "Well, I, I I I love the sun, and the sun's not here, so I'm going to find an, <laughs> I'm going to find a nicer spot to set up my center of power than Mordor." Right? Instead, he's looking on with what is nonverbal but seems patent satisfaction uh, at what he's seeing in front of him. Right? We I think we do get the implicit message, uh, f- you know, from so we didn't get an actual voiceover. Right? Sauron saying. I am Sauron and I approve this volcano, but I think that is what I was picking up uh, from that end of the scene. So it seems, despite what he said to Galadriel, that I think his perspective is closer to Adar's than it is opposed to it, as he as he claims. Um, but Galadriel, of course, we've been... Focusing on Galadriel's need for healing, on her deep woundedness of spirit, her trauma that she's experienced, the grief that she's been working through, and the complex issues of uh, self-loathing that that has triggered in her, her sense of self-worth, her purpose that she is trying to use to crawl out of that, her um, being locked in this desire for vengeance, uh, you know, that she herself confessed in episode 5 looked like it was it making her indistinguishable from her enemies to her friends, right? So um, where she was on this, now we saw in the last episode, in episode seven, that she seems to have really turned a corner. What we hear from Galadriel is plainly different in episode seven than we heard before. So as you'll remember last week, I was like, I'm interested to see where she goes from here. And where she goes from here is straight into the fire. Um, She is tested and tested strongly in this episode. Um, uh, And I think that that was really fascinating to see. Now, we don't see... Sauron in that temptation sequence, offering her healing. I was wondering if he might, right? If he might offer himself, just as he was trying to heal Middle Earth, that he can he can heal her too, right? And she can be free from all of her, you know, doubts and and uh, and self loathing and 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 what have you. Um, he didn't do that. But what he did do instead was really come in on and attack her through her areas of vulnerability that we've seen. He struck right at that stuff, um, and was trying to exploit her woundedness in order to manipulate her and bring her around. Um, and she emerged from that. She did not, um, and again, this was in, in keeping, I think, with her upward turn. She retained her balance there. She passed the test, um, when you know, the test that Sauron was, was giving her, basically. And what followed that? was that very significant symbolic moment of giving up her dagger, right? She, gave, she yielded up her dagger, not just giving it away. She gave her sword away to Theo last week, right? But, like, theoretically, she knows where it is. (laughs) She could go back for that, right? It was a much more permanent... I'm not saying she will, but I'm just saying the giving up of the dagger was a much more permanent um, and explicit sacrifice. It was going to be melted down right in front of her face, right? There was no returning to that. Now, think... I think that, on the one hand, these two things augment each other, right? On the one hand, we get the... The giving up of the sword and the giving up of her dagger, now she surrendered all of her weapons. She's now a warrior with no weapons at all. And it suggests a real shift in her perception of her identity. But at the same time, the sword and the dagger are different, right? The sword was something, the identity that she had made for herself. In this whole process, right, of seeking vengeance and everything else. Remember, it was in episode one she told Elrond she didn't know if she could lay down her sword because she didn't know who she would be or what she would be without it. Um, The dagger is different. The dagger is explicitly connected with her brother and with her oath to pursue vengeance for her brother and to continue his oath. Her surrendering of the dagger was m- much more than the laying down of her sword. Again, that has to do with kind of her identity. The dagger was about that oath, was about that vengeance. Um, it looked like she was basically giving up the... she was not going to drink the seawater, right? Um, uh, and by surrendering the uh, the vengeance dagger. Uh, remember, it was featuring very heavily in her lowest moment of almost slitting Adar's throat, right? Um, so... I think that that was again another... So I would love to say that Galadriel, having passed Sauron's test and then given up the Dagger of Vengeance, ended in this beautiful, thoroughly positive place. But I can't say that. The ending was strange. Her ending was strange. Um, When she comes up to the tower looking like she is going to stop the the ring-making from moving forward, and instead she urges them to make another one for her. Right, Um, And so it seems at the end, having laid aside her sword and having given up her dagger, she's now taking up the ring as a new weapon, as a different stage in her warfare, in her quest. I'm still not sure exactly where that's going or what we're going to see there, nor am I entirely sure why she seemed to pivot and change her mind. Our attention was drawn to that with her conversation with Elrond about trusting her, right? Um, fulfilling his promise to trust her in future. So she said, essentially, she said, trust me. So I, as viewer, am willing to trust her. She's been, she's been going in a good direction, right? But I don't know what it means. And I don't know what it's going to mean for the next stage of her journey. She's, her healing journey is clearly not done yet. Um, I think it's been encouraging, even on the whole, on balance, I think her journey in episode eight, I think was a net encouragement. But it ended on a question mark. So we'll have to wait and see where we go with that. So as you'll recall, there are two types of hope. And I've been emphasizing this because this is a really important theme in Tolkien. Uh, So there's uh, the the Elvish words for this are um, umdir and estel. So you'll recall that um, umdir means being hopeful for the future. Like you think there's a good chance things are going to work out is what um, umdir means. Um, So when somebody, and I think in the show, when we hear people use the word hope, it tends to mean umdir, I think, in that sense. The other kind of hope is called estel, estel or high hope, sometimes it's called in Tolkien. And what that means is a broader trust that things are going to work out, even if they might not work out well for you, right? This is not positive thinking about your own destiny or about the project that you're currently working on. It is a much broader trust that things are going to, pan out the way that they're supposed to pan out, however it turns out for you. And I think that more often when in the show we hear people talking about faith, they're thinking about Estelle. I think faith is a word that is correlated with that, uh, with that kind of Estelle perspective throughout this show so far. One of the places in which we see Estelle shown, and it's interesting because at first it sounds like it's an um, Amdir issue, is Sadak at the end of episode seven, when they're setting out, right, and he's been kind of voluntold to be in the party, right, and he uh, he says, we're all going to die, right? So it sounds like uh, Sadak is is lacking a bit in Umdir, right? He does not have any hope that things are going to turn out well for them, uh, right? So his, well, not skepticism, but anyway, his... Um, well, no, I guess it's fair to say that he's skeptical about this enterprise and how it's going to turn out, or at least those are the noises that he's making, right? However, we get this beautiful turn, and I've already spoken about that a little bit in another segment. But um, when he faces death and he is resolved to it, the peace and tranquility with which he faces death, his pessimistic prediction about death has turned out to be true, right? Not for everybody, just for him personally, right? Which you'd think would not be well-received by him, right? But he handles it. Um, What he shows there is Estelle, right? So his Amdir might be questionable, but his Estelle is strong, right? He is there. He is looking towards the sunrise. uh, He is confident um, in being with his wife, right, that, you know, that 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 things are going to be what they should be. Um, and really, if we think about it, if we kind of back up a little bit, um, the Harfoots as a whole, they don't talk about hope very much. Um, I don't think I've talked about the Harfoots much at all in discussing the hope theme as we've been going through this show. It doesn't get raised by them a lot. However, I think that the Harfoots are a really good example of Estelle. They, like, embody Estelle, they really enact it, Um, the way that they, you know, we've seen, look at where they are at the end of episode 8 at the end of season 1, Sadak their leader has died, their wagons have all been destroyed, they don't know how to they're in unprecedented ground, how do they continue as a migratory people, what are they going to eat, how can they carry enough food how are they going to survive all the perils that are going to lie ahead of them Um, but what do they do, they stick together and they go on um, they're not confident, they don't have grounds for confidence, they don't have umdir that things are going to work out. They just step forward and move forward um, in trust, trust in each other, love for each other. Um, so I do think that we can see, again, although it's not discussed much, I wanted to point out that I do think that the Harfoots really uh, really point to this theme pretty well. Um, another place where this comes up, only briefly, but I think really significantly is with elendil and muriel on board elendil's ship there's that brief exchange that we got when elendil kind of comes out of the closet as one of the faithful right admits that he's one of the faithful to muriel who also admits to him notice by the way how close they were standing to each other um they won't speak about this in full voices even on his own ship Right, they're speaking very quietly to each other. It's a very kind of conspiratorial thing, because it's clear that it's dangerous to talk this way in Numenor, and I suspect that that is a preparation for what we're going to see in ep- in episode two, in season two. Um, I, I expect that kind of political tension and the active persecution of the faithful to be something that we're going to see in season two. But anyway, um, what they talk about. So it's when. Muriel is talking about her father, the king's words about what it means to be the faithful. And at first, she talks about willingness to pay the price, no matter what the cost. So it's it's about sacrifice. It's about willingness to sacrifice yourself and the things that you love. Of course, she's talking to Alendo who believes he's he's just lost his son, right? Um, so this is you know, and he, of course, you'll remember, responds by saying sometimes the cost is very high, right? Um, but she add something to that. It's not just about sacrifice. It's not just about paying the price. It's also about trusting, she says, trusting that in the end it will be worth it. Trusting that how things are going to turn out are the way that they should be. Even if, no matter what happens to us, right? That that And notice there's, it goes a step beyond merely disregarding dear. It's a conviction to go, despite Amdir, even if the hope for how things are going to turn out for you is, is, is actively bad. Even if it looks like self-sacrifice is what lies in store for you, um, that's still what you should do. Um, and it's her that, that faith, that trust. Um, trust, I think, is the key word that really points in that Estelle direction, in that conversation. And this, of course, is particularly significant, that this is Elendil that she's having this conversation with. Because, of course, Elendo, spoilers, of course anyone who's seen the Peter Jackson films will already know this, is going to die on Mount Doom. He is going to be giving his life in order to, like, that's where his trajectory is headed. Um, so that, I think, was, was really interesting. Now, finally, I want to talk about the hope of the elves. Um, <laughs> which is honestly a little bit of a downer to end on. But um, we have Gil- Gilgalad is skeptical, remember. So you know we've got the you know Celebrimbor trying to convince him that maybe we can make this Mithril thing work. And his skepticism, they're like, well, we have this little bitty nugget of Mithril and we're going to save the entire elf. You can't make a decent elvish tanning salon out of a little nugget of Mithril. That's never going to work. So he's worried about this, right? And um, And he... Um, Elrond turns it around on him. You may remember, he quotes Gilgalad's earlier speech, right? Um, hope is never mere, even when it is meager. Um, and convinces him to hold on and let them give it another shot, right? Now, on the surface, this sounds like a great thing, right? He's, he is, Elrond, that is, is advocating for hope when Gilgalad seems to be giving up hope. And again, that, that hope is good. That seems like a good thing, right? Except... Uh, once again, it's all Umdir. We talked about this. This, I think, is when I first introduced the Estelle Umdir thing um, in this show was when Gilgalad was talking about that back in episode five, when he said the thing which Elrond is flipping back around on him now. And I was saying that the problem there is not that he has hope. It's not that hope is bad, but it's the kind of hope that he has. He has Umdir. He is hoping that things will work out. He's hoping that they'll be able to, that they'll figure out, that they'll solve the problem right? And correct the issue. It's Um, Amdir. It's not Estelle. He is not like willing to sacrifice. He's not willing to trust. Um, And so again, although it looks good, this appeal for hope that Elrond is taking, the foundations of that hope are really, really weak. It's actually, I think, very concerning. And the more we back up from that and think about it, the worse it seems. Instead of trusting that things are going to work out, even if it looks bad, Even if it looks like they might, instead of saying, well, the elves may diminish and die, if that's, you know, the will of Iluvatar or the will of the Valar, the elves will diminish and die, and yet we trust that things are going to work out despite that. No, they're convinced. Gilgalad is explicitly convinced from episode 5 that if the elves fail, everyone's going to die. Right. Like it's they're the only hope. It's it's the elves only standing between the world and darkness. If the if the dwarves go into the West or if they all diminish to nothing, then darkness wins. He says that to Elrond. Right. Um, and so instead of trusting, he says, no, we must uh, find some technology, some mechanism by which we can ensure that. Things come out. We need to increase our um, dear quotient, right? Our the the increase the chances that things are going to pan out the way we want them to, the way we think they have to. There's a lot of pride, There's a lot of arrogance involved in that elvish position. Um, Estelle is fundamentally a humble and unself-regarding thing. Um, so, what they need to be saying is maybe it's not all about us, actually. But none of the elves are saying anything like that. Elrond kind of came close when he was insisting that keeping the oath was important despite the fact that it seemed like a bad thing, right? That, you know, uh, when Gogalad and Celebrimbor were leaning on him to say, like, break your oath and that's a bad look, but it's in a good cause, right? Don't you want to save your people? Isn't that a good end, uh, you know, for to do this really sketchy thing? And when Elrond stands firm against that, it sounds like he's on at least the path to Estelle, right? Saying like, "Yeah, I, I'm I'm not going to do what seems like the expedient route to achieving our end." at the expense of my oath when that obvious red flag is telling me that it's the wrong thing to do. And you'll remember, we were talking about that scene in episode five when gil is making his Omdir-based statements and then goes away and Elrond immediately turns and looks up at the star which his father is currently driving, which is the star of High Hope, the star of Gil-Estel. So that looks, again, that looks good. Like Elrond was the one elf who was thinking in at least an Estelle words direction, right? But since then he's, he's, he's bought in, he's bought into the, the crisis of the elves that it needs to be solved no matter what. So the argument that he's making to to Gilgalad here is just an Omdir based argument and does not argue from trust or faith or hope at all. Not that kind of hope. Um, so I think it's, really fascinating that it's the elves of all of the plot lines that we've seen. Everybody in Middle-earth <laughs> seems to have more Estelle than the elves do, and that's a really interesting thing to notice. Once again, I would like to begin by talking about Saddock's death. I was trying to see how many segments today I could start by talking about Saddock's death, and it turns out to be a surprising number of them. Not the least of which is the death theme. But what I want to emphasize about Saddock's death in this regard, it's like what I was talking about in connection with hope. Um, but I wanted to emphasize this because one of the main things we've been focusing on throughout season one with this whole death and mortality theme. It's 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 not about people dying, it's about the overall attitude towards death and towards being mortal. Um, This, as I've been saying, is the thing that we know from Tolkien's works, or believe we know from Tolkien's works, is going to be leading to the downfall of Numenor, that they are mortal and they're not going to take it anymore. Um, And that's what's going to lead to their problems. We have seen, and I've been discussing, how that same concept of the awareness of impending mortality, not just personal mortality, like I'm about to die, but... You know, like racial, cultural mortality—we are all doomed for death—and how the elves have been dealing with that, as they've been um, trying to figure out. As indeed have we all this whole fading of the elves thing um, that Gilgalad and Celebrimbor told Elrond about, and that Elrond explained. I've talked about that quite a bit. Um, but nevertheless, we've seen um, whether or not, howsoever much truth there may be in what Gilgalad and Kelabrimbor believe about the fate of the elves, um, it still has led to these important questions that they're working through. Sadak has shown us one of the first examples in this show of how it's supposed to be, about what a good attitude towards mortality is. Sadak knows he's going to die and he resigns himself to death. He doesn't try. He doesn't try desperately to cling to life, no matter what. Um, he he is comfortable with it. He knows it is his fate. Um, it's interesting to me that he uses the metaphor. I'm going to walk off trail, right? Because there's a sense, of course, in which that's true. He's going to leave them behind, right? They can't follow where he's going. So in that sense, he's wandering off trail, right? But of course, there's a there's a deeper sense, I think, in which He's not, right? Nobody walks alone is the other half of that statement, right? Nobody goes off trail and nobody walks alone. Um, In resigning himself to death and to what he's viewing as his probable reunion with his deceased wife, he's not separating himself. Again, he's physically separating himself from from his immediate companions there. But he is, you know, joining all the Harfoots, right, that they remember, including his wife, among the left-behinds. Um, so there's that deeper sense in which he's doing the opposite of going off trail, right, in which he's coming back among the Harfoots, and they're sticking together now uh, in death. But again, his attitude, that resignation that he shows towards death, it's not the same situation. It's not exactly the counter. The classic example in Tolkien's literature of this proper attitude to death, exactly the reverse of the bad attitude that's going to lead the Numenorians into so many problems, um, the classic example of that is Aragorn resigning himself to death, which we see in, um, in Appendix A of The Return of the King. Um, so that's when Aragorn is a, an old man after being king for a long time, um, and he gives up his life. His time has come, and he gives up his life willingly. Sadek isn't doing that. I mean, he's only dying because he got stabbed in the gut, right? Um, so he's not, he's not going the full direction. But again, I think we get our first glimpse of what a proper attitude towards death and mortality is. And in the same episode, of course, we got our first glimpse into what I've been waiting to see all season long, and that is the Numenorian attitude towards mortality i mentioned we got the faintest hint of it in the lyrics of the patriotic pro numenor song that they were singing down at the pub uh when the soldiers were getting ready to go to war in middle earth um uh back in episode five i think that was um but um that was again this patriotic song which talked about them conquering death even at the end of the verse, ended with them conquering death. Um, so there, that, that that fantasy is out there, that that concept exists, that maybe they can prevail against death itself, is like a little seed that was uh, that was planted there, right? But we finally got, as Tar Palantir, the king, is lying in his deathbed. He's been in his deathbed for some time, right? But he seems to be really about to go this time. And Farazan um, uh, Ph- Ph- is already... Carving his monument. First of all, the coldness of that. Here's the living king, right? He's lying there, alive still. And it's worse than, like, holding a funeral for a living person, right? He's sitting there, and meanwhile, Farazan is talking over his head, like, we're talking about his funerary monument, and we're going to do viewings, of his soon-to-be corpse, right? We're gonna we're, we're gonna lay you out in advance, O oh King, right? Uh, so that people can start measuring you. It's it's like worse than being measured for your coffin, right? He's he's being he's being sketched uh, for his you know monument here. Um, so the disregard of the life of the king in order to celebrate, right? The, but it's not celebrating his life; it's combating. His mortality, right? Farazan makes that speech where he says the only way that, you know, he's going to achieve the immortality in stone which men cannot in their lives attain in the flesh. That sense of resentment that men have to die that they shouldn't have to die. And we know that one of the signs of the decline of Numenor, one of the real red flags that their attitude towards death and mortality is becoming really dangerously off-kilter, is that they begin to make more and more elaborate tombs, again, attempting to achieve, to, to rebel, to protest almost, against mortality by, in death, let's render them immortal, right, with these huge... Tombs and elaborate statues and things um, in order to achieve a kind of fake immortality, right? But as I say, it's, it's almost a, a form of protest. And I think that we can hear that resentment with Farazhan there. So we're getting here at the very end of season two, our first glimmerings of that. And then notice what we get. Remember, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I know for me, the views of Numenor have been one of the most... Stunning things in season one. I mean, if I had to list my top five favorite things from season one, I think just looking at Numenor would be one of my favorite things from season one. It is a beautiful, vibrant, varied, and fascinating place to see on screen. And what's the last view of it we get? Where do we end season one? The last view of Numenor we get is the city and the harbor shrouded with those mourning flags, right? Transformed by death, commemorating death across the whole city. The death of the king, of course. And Muriel can't see it because she's blind, right? So immediately we see her blindness coming into effect. And of course, um, that blindness as as sort of uh, uh, projecting onto the increasing blindness of the Numenorians as they move forward. I think it's going to be interesting to see how that gets played. I think it will go in several different directions. Um, but that last grim sign, all of those beautiful, gorgeous blue fabrics and things that we see, shrouded in black there at the end. Um, and I think that that is a, a slightly ominous but very appropriate transition into what we're going to see in season two. So with the fate theme, I feel like we have to begin with Tar Palantir, who, well, I was going to say he makes another prophecy. Actually, he makes the same prophecy again that he's made before. Um, but that itself is conspicuous. That moment with Arian, where she's doing her sketch, right, that, like, really creepy I am pretending that you're dead sketch that she's doing. Um, and then has that awkward moment when the corpse that she's sketching wakes up and she doesn't know what to do, right, as who would. Um, But, of course, he begins by sounding like he's speaking directly to her, talking about, like, you know, I know, you know, what you do in the darkness, which I'm sure is not as creepy as it sounds. But, um, anyway, it sounds like he has inside information about her, right? He has direct insight into what's going on in her secret thoughts, which, by the way, is really interesting and how freaked she is about that, which there's lots of reasons why she would be freaked about that. But one of the things that's been one of my questions is, uh, what are her thoughts in the darkness right we've se- i we've seen her start down a sort of questionable road and we know that she has been alone with her grief and her worry and uncertainty and i think that if she was already taking a couple dark steps as she seemed to be back in episode 5 um the who knows how many steps she's taken since then. That's what I was thinking about when uh, Tar first said that. But then it's clear that he's addressing her as Muriel. And he's not, again, he's not telling us new information. We know about the prophecy that he uttered before. Tar has... Exp- Sorry, I called her Tar Muriel. That was a little slip I haven't done for a while. She's not tar- She's not the queen. So she's not Tar She's Muriel, the queen regent. Anyway, Muriel tells Galadriel... All about this prophecy and shows her the Palantir, right, which is sort of the source of um, Tara Palantir's, uh, you know, her father's um, prophetic insight, right, into what's going to happen with Numenor. So, again, on the one hand, it seems like, okay, we're just being, like, reminded of this, I guess, but it seems to me very conspicuous because the prophecy that was made to Miriel, she was going to thwart. She, like, having been warned by her father, she has taken that warning to heart, and she is going to try to prevent the bad thing that he foretells from coming to pass. And I talked about this back in episode, um, five, I think it was episode five, um, when we were talking about fate there, and I said that she's doing the Oedipus thing. Right where you go out of your way to try to prevent a prophecy coming true, and by going out of your way, you end up doing the thing that makes it come true in the first place, and it kind of looked like that was kind of where we were headed, and that was before I, you know, we even knew about her impending blindness, which is of course the fulfillment of his little prophecy that she would find only darkness in Middle Earth. So, um, so again, we're, 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 we're on the one hand reminded of all those things, but it's not just a reminder. We're going back to the beginning. We're going back, in pa- going back into the past instead of moving ahead into the future and seeing, well, now what? Now that you know, the trip to Middle-earth has happened and she's found darkness there, and it's like, what, how is that going to lead to things? Where is that going next? And instead of that, we go back. We go back to the original the first time that he did this prophecy. Why do we get this reiteration? Well, the immediate impact of it, of course... Is that his audience is different this time. It's not Mirio by his bedside. Um, it's Arian. It's not his loving daughter who is worried about his health and hoping he will get better. It is the you know, uh, apprentice, um guild's person, um architect's guild, dad was it, architect's guild, um, who Builder's Guild, but she's an architect, right? Okay, that was it. Anyway, point is, um, it's this part who's sketching him for his own death, right? It's, it's like almost the opposite of the bedside care situation that he was sort of uh, imagining he was in. Um, but the effect of this is to bring Arian into this story. In other words, it's like we're bringing into him at the beginning. It's like a, a reiteration, a recapitulation. We're starting it up again. Um, Muriel got a version of that prophecy, and we see what she did with it. What's Arian going to do with it? And how is that going to spill over onto the rest of Elendil's family? Elendil's about to return. How is this going to impact him? He, although he and Mirio are close, it's not obvious that he has to this point known what that prophecy was. We saw her share that with Galadriel. It is not obvious that she shared it with Elendil. She may, now that they're both, you know, have, like past their secret faithful signs and now know that each other are are, are members of the faithful. Um, but she hadn't at this point. But now um, Elendil's family itself is being brought in uh, to this whole situation. Um, and I'll be interested to see where that goes. Arian ascends up to the Palantir. We see her about to look at the Palantir. I assume she does. How's that going to impact her? How is this second version um, of when somebody who is... Sympathetic with Farazhan Sees this prophecy What's she going to do with that information? How's that going to get out? How is this going to go the second time? Miriel kept it secret and tried to thwart it What's Arian going to do? Um, so I think that's um, where we're set up But again it's interesting to me That we get the same prophetic situation Now we're going we're to roll the same script But with a significantly different character And in different circumstances So how will these two things Aarion as recipient of the prophecy and Muriel as recipient of the prophecy when she comes home. How are their two tracks going to work together in season two? I think that'll be a fun thing to look forward to. Now, another way in which fate got, gets invoked explicitly in this episode is from Sauron during his temptation to Galadriel. It's when they're standing on the raft and he um, he brings up what has to be a confusing fact. You'll remember that when Goadriel met Halbrand, this is one of the places we started talking about the fate theme um, way back in episode two. And that was when the random chance meeting, right? The chance meeting between Goadriel and Halbrand, she's swimming across the open ocean and comes across them adrift in a raft. Neither one of them are really steering <laughs> effectively, right? They're just both of them. Um, happen upon each other, and Galadriel is immediately convinced, and with some reason like she 's not wrong to think like i 'm in a tolkien story i 've had a random chance meeting like this that 's probably important right like that 's totally a thing, and Galadriel 's onto to that, so she believes that they 've been brought together for a purpose, and what is that purpose and you 'll note and so of course, when she now finds that it 's sauron right she 's questioning this. What exactly is going on? Was she meant to find Sauron? Is that truly what happened? Um, And he plays on this. He immediately appeals to this and says... You said we were brought together for a purpose. We were brought together for a purpose. And that purpose was for us to be bound together and you to, you know, be my evil bride and whatever, like right, right? My evil empress ruling the universe. And um, that, I feel confident in saying, is not true. Um, whatever was happening and why ever it was happening pretty sure that that's not the reason. Now, Galadriel sees through it, um, but it's really interesting to see Sauron moving to sort of pervert that. Interestingly, the, the other chance meeting, which we talked about in episode three, um, as a prominent instance of this theme, was the chance meeting between Elendil and Galadriel and Halbrand on the raft when he rescues them. And Elendil calls that into question in this episode as well, saying um, that You know, he was saying in the last episode that he wished he hadn't taken her on board. Um, He believed that there was a purpose to that, too. He also was interpreting that in the same way. This is fate. This is meant to happen. There's a purpose here. But notice what Elendil emphasizes in his conversation with Muriel. He keeps coming back to choice. This was meant to happen. I was meant to find a person, but it was my choice to bring her onto the ship. It was my choice to follow her to Middle-earth, and it was my choice to let my son come with us and follow her as well to Middle-earth. In fact, of course, that one is most conspicuously his choice, right? As he, like, bent the rules to let Isildur come. Um, So if he's regretting that, that one's going to burn twice as bad uh, for that reason. But again, it really emphasizes the choice that he plays. So this... um, kind of bringing together this playing off of each other of fate and choice, of, of this this destiny or purpose that is laid upon things without their knowledge or necessarily their consent, that things are going to work out in this way, whatever people do is active on the one hand, and he perceives that, but at the same time, he also perceives that his choice matters, that he could have done things differently, despite the fact that chance brought them together like this. And this is an important theme in Tolkien. Tolkien is very active in bringing together fate and free will, emphasizing that although there is an overriding purpose, the choices that people make matter, and they can alter the course of events, except things work out the way they're supposed to. Anyway, that's the mystery of the thing. These things seem contradictory, but Tolkien almost always insists, and sometimes insists openly, on the fact that both of these two things are at work together. And nowhere do we see this more forcibly presented than with Nori and The Stranger. Nori, of course, has been like the hero of the fate theme all the way through season one, right? She was the first one to perceive that there was this chance meeting, the first one to emphasize explicitly that she's been called for a purpose. She found him, there's a reason that she found him, um, and that there's something that she needs to do, right? She felt this active calling in response to that perception of purpose. So she has been articulating that, that there was, there was a reason, there was a destiny. You'll remember that her, uh, her mother Marigold was challenging her on that, do you think there's a destiny in this, right? And she seemed to be responding to that when in her time of fear and doubt, she says oh, I'm 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 just a harfoot. Remember that's back in episode 7, right at the beginning, I'm just a harfoot. I was I was silly to think that I could have a higher calling, that there was that I could be involved in any higher purpose, right? She has that moment of doubt, but then she returns to it, knowing that she does have a responsibility. She should follow the stranger. Uh and and you know, reciprocate that friendship, right? However, in episode eight, she comes back, and when she's confronting the stranger, he is in a, a sort of fate-oriented fit of despair. He's been told that he is not good. He is peril after all, right? That he is Sauron, that he is evil, and feels that he does not have a choice, that he's in that moment of near despair, succumbing to the idea that this is who he is and he has no choice in the matter. And she is the one who insists she, who has been, as I say, the spokesperson of the fate and purpose idea more than anyone else in the show is the one who looks him. eye, eye to eye and says, you have a choice. What you do determines who you are. Um, and, once again, we see, as we as we already saw, her turning and choosing to follow her calling. She mightn't have done, right? She didn't have to, but she she knows it's the right thing to do, and she sets out to follow that purpose, to respond to that calling again, and now she challenges him to make his choice, and to do his thing so her emphasis on choice and the significance of choice, defining who you are, um, and, and, and and what you do, and what your outcomes is, while at the same time acknowledging there is this purpose, and the two of them going off together, fulfills that, on both sides again, right she is choosing, to. Come. he offers her the choice she chooses to come with him, and they're going to go off to do, well they're not sure what, but He's pretty sure that they have a purpose to attain. He talks to her about the higher purpose, right? Um, that there is something of the higher purpose that has laid these things, but she has to choose to come with him. So he echoes back to her at the end of episode eight um, that that fate that fate and free will combination, which she herself taught him earlier in the episode, um, and it's it's pretty cool. As they say, Nori Brandyfoot is. Uh, Well, I was going to call her the master of fate, but that's probably not a good idea. I won't I won't give her that name. But anyway, she is uh, she is the one who has the best grasp on fate and choice and how those two things work together. All
1: right, gang, final scene analysis. There's going to be a lot more going on, too. But I definitely want us to dig into that dream sequence because so much was covered um, in that that I think it's a really fun one to pick apart production-wise and visually. Um, so I'm, if you want to follow along, I'm at 41 minutes uh, into this episode. And I'm picking 41 specifically because that's where we see the switch when she's talking to Halbrand, and Halbrand becomes Sauron. Who are you, she asks. And if you watch, there's a 10-second window where the light changes from this warm, fuzzy, well-lit, idyllic, pastoral-type feeling to a very dark, not-so-friendly, and the camera swoops around, and we have that visual shift. So we see him start to embody that different being. The camera spins around behind Galadriel's head. The shadow shifts onto his face, and it is darker and stops the blade, not able to move. Then we have this cut, and we have Galadriel in this dream sequence— and it's almost too perfect. If you look at the scene, it's beautifully lit. It's wonderful afternoon sun. If you know photography, you've probably heard of the rule of thirds, and I've definitely messaged, messaged um, mentioned that before. It's a perfect rule of thirds. You know, we have this lovely line across the horizon, this lovely line with the bridge, this lovely line with Galadriel. So it's this very visually satisfying picture of just clean, beautiful, idyllic Galadriel with like way too perfect hair for what's been going on. And she's in this lush grass. Because it's so perfect, I found it very unsettling. It was, no, especially because of what just came before, that doesn't quite fit the mood that we're in. So you're suspicious of this perfection. Then we start to hear Finrond and we question what's going on. She does as well. She doesn't want to believe it, refuses to turn around, not engaging with, with this being that is talking behind her, I, not letting herself believe it either. And that was really touching just as like a nod to grief, that she wouldn't let herself believe that. This this person that she has been longing for and loves so hard is now physically there, but she doesn't want to engage with him because it's not real, but she wants it to be real. So you kind of feel that pool. And you see that pool as they hold the camera static, and he squats down, and you see everything but the face. So... I don't know if you were doing the same, but or were we going to see Hal Brown's face or were we going to see Finrod's face? So it was it was very keeping us guessing as we got into that. So then when we did see him, it was a moment of relief, and you see that on Galadriel's face. But it's also a moment of, uh, I just don't know if I can trust this. The next scene we have with them is completely reminiscent of them as children. Um, we have Galadriel innocent looking up at him. We have a downward angle on her and an upward angle on Finrod, and it is very intense of that relationship between the younger sister and the older brother. She looks up at him, tell me more, tell me more, and it's very hopeful. So you have this kind of innocence in the relationship, but the language starts to shift, the music starts to shift, the colors start to shift, and then the gaze starts to shift. So throughout this, we have an over-the-shoulder shot looking down at as she's oh, so joyful to see her brother, and then we start to not trust it. And that gets a little tricky because we're going to be suspicious of what's going on. And then he starts to say, get out of their way. Just let them do their thing. Sounds like there's another message in there, doesn't it? And all of a sudden it's not her brother and she is aware of this. And you start to see that shift in her eyes. It gets closer and closer in frame as he leans in and whispers into her ear. Pulls back. She's looking, at up, at, looking up at him going, my brother is dead. And that's when the penny drops for her that you can't trust this dream. From that moment, we have the same angles going on. The tear drips from her face and she stands up, breaking that angle. So instead of having just the upward shot and the downward shot of this little sister, big brother relationship, we have a turning away from it. Nope, this is not this is not the relationship that we have. So I'm walking away from it. It almost felt like, oh, I tried to trick her that way. Cut, next one, we're on a raft. So he's trying another tactic, right? So he's kind of going through the repertoire of really powerful, strong memories of Galadriel in order to have this reaction from her. So the first one failed. We then cut away to the raft. The raft, I thought, was really beautifully filmed as well because nearly the entire scene is, like, equal. Angles. Like everything's pretty much spaced out. There are no downward, upward angles. There isn't a power struggle here. So this feels a little bit like we tried good cop, bad cop. We tried manipulation through family. Now I'm just going to try like straight talking honesty with you. I'm not going to trust that because it's, you know, Sauron, but that's how it's shot. So we're kind of having this straight up equality. Wide angles. Some mid-shots, mostly over-the-shoulder conversation. So looking over the shoulder of Galadriel at, I was going to say Halbrand, to Sauron, and switch that around to the other direction. So we have equal space of these two characters in frame. And the whole time we have those angles, they're having the conversation about partnership. So he's proposing to her, we want this stronger relationship. I want you by my side. You will be a queen. You know, he's, he's kind of having this temptation conversation with her, but it looks like it's framed completely as an equal. Straight shots of eyeline, definitely no manipulation of a power struggle there. Then we start to get the swoop around, and that's the first time we're a bit unsettled that something is a bit different. Had the swoop camera around, then coming down to look down on them and see the inverse of their shadows in the water uh that was beautiful so you know we've talked a lot about inverted angles and the reflection of darkness in the water which way is up that whole theme is brought back to us in that shot and we see the strong powerful galadriel alongside the iconic sauron and see what he's offering i thought there'd be a bit more of a temptation element with this because we know that that is one of the things that galadriel kind of struggles with this this idea of wanting more power but there wasn't much of that it was a very quick well that's not how i see it and no, I'm not okay with this. So she shoots him down real fast. We have extreme close-ups. They're getting tighter and tighter and tighter with their faces right in the center of the frame. And it's, it's really taking up the majority of the screen. And he's holding her chin still. So there's no way we can get away from this shot. More intense, more intense. The edits of this bit as well. If you start to count the frames, the, the seconds that were on each frame it's quite long. Like in general shots for films, if you want to be really annoying the next time you watch a movie with somebody, count the seconds per per frame. It's usually three to five seconds per shot and they'll change angles. So it's like one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three. So you can do that for most films and it's usually between three and five seconds per shot. If it's longer than that, it's usually an establishing shot or something like that where they want you to sit with whatever they're showing you and take in that information or it's a longer speech or something like that that just requires more time. If you start to do some of that with this scene, it's significantly longer for Galadriel's pieces and not necessarily because of speech. Uh, Sauron's are longer because of the things that he's saying. He's got a you know big old pitch that he's doing here for Galadriel. But the the time actually spent on Gladriel's face, even when she's not talking, is pretty substantial. So to me, that feels like the power is starting to shift. He's trying very hard to convince her in this, I am your equal, I see this vision for us, come be powerful with me. But actually, visually, we're kind of being shown the opposite, that she's got more control of this scene than we thought. She's got more wherewithal of what's going on and what he's proposing and doesn't believe it. So he puts his hand down. She says, that's absolutely not, you know, the same thing to me. I will not take that. And we cut immediately from that to her plunging into the sea. So it's almost as if he has cut the ties, right? He's given up on that that tactic as well. um, And you will die because of me with super tight confrontation, anger, frustration. And then we see her deep in the sea. So the deep in the water, the sinking the stillness, quiet, slow, steady, medium shot. We cannot look away. She is stuck, she is tethered, and so are we. So there is almost a resignation to that kind of feeling, but to me it didn't feel desperate and it didn't feel negative. It felt substantial. Like, I am not going down that track. I have chosen this. You know, he turned big, bad, dark, and ugly, screaming at her, and then... They end that relationship. There will be no more discussion. The negotiations are over. <laughs> um, and then back to that that water scene that we have seen before, but tumultuous um, and and concerning because there's he's not there to rescue her this time. And then cutting from that to Elrond, uh, it just jumps straight into who can we trust? Where are we? what's next? Um, and that's what we're asking. you know throughout the rest of this episode, we're really figuring out what did happen, what does that mean? how are we going to move forward in this and how is this going to affect but that dream sequence and everything that was exchanged in it just set hal Brand up into sauron for me and i thought it was really beautifully told visually dialogue shots all of that so yeah now that i've watched it about 17 times i feel pretty strongly about that scene being really beautifully done So we're at episode eight, the end of season one. I feel like I need to just kind of take a step back and take a look at the whole story we have so far. I really look forward to being able to sit down for eight plus hours and just watch all of series one and see how it ties together. But a lot of the things that I've been thinking about are kind of some core of basic adaptation discussion. So I thought it might be useful to bring some of that in here. And one of the things that's really been on my mind is adaptation and audience expectation. There's a lot in that, but the like overarching side of it, when you're adapting something, there's already a very high expectation because you are taking a text that people know a lot about, maybe not many people, but those people know it real well and they're very passionate about it. And when you are taking that and moving it to screen, you're automatically putting it at risk of being different from what they are picturing and different than they would expect. So you want to try to... Be aware of that and whatever you show them to not alienate them or make them feel, oh, this is wrong, right? You want to kind of gently introduce the world to them and be respectful of the text that it came from. So we don't change massive things. We don't, you know, put like a a random school bus in the middle of Middle Earth. It has to kind of stay in the world that we're in. The challenge we have with something like Rings of Power, and I think is an incredibly brave choice by the showrunners, is that we do not have a core text here. We do not have a story arc and dialogue and conversation between these characters. We have a few points on an overarching timeline that has to happen, and that feeds into the story that we know more detail about in the Third Age with Frodo and Sam and Rings of Power there, the One Ring. This period, we don't have that. So it's exciting because they have all this opportunity to create the story that they want, but also all of the risk because it could go against the expectation of everyone, right? There's no really core singular thing that they have to follow. The core thing they have to follow is to be in the spirit of Tolkien. And we've talked about that a lot. What does that mean? That's really difficult. Um, So having the lore and Tolkien quotes at the core of their own creative process, I think, has been very enlightening and very telling. And we've obviously seen a lot of the lore sprinkled throughout these eight episodes. So that made me start thinking about their audiences. I feel like there's two really clear audiences, and then there's kind of variations on that line. But the two very clear audiences are those that know Tolkien and those that don't. (laughs) So we have the layperson that just puts on this new thing because they saw a commercial on Instagram, or it's the big thing on the top of their Amazon Prime, and they'll give it a shot. They might vaguely know about this character, Galadriel and Elrond, because they saw that Peter Jackson trilogy a few years ago, but only saw it once and kind of forget. So that's, that's like camp one. Camp two are the people that have their notepads out and their tick lists and are going through all of the things that they expect from the lore and does that work rules-wise and picking it apart. And it's a game for a lot of people. And that's awesome. You know, like, that can be super fun to play that figure-it-out game. And the showrunners have been so good about putting elements in place for us to latch on to and go into deep analysis and consider lore, consider history, talk about the things that we know from Tolkien's works and his world and how they're incorporated into this show, and keep us guessing. Yes, it's Easter eggs. You know, there are these little things that are just kind of nice little nods to the Tolkien fan of like, oh, you're going to pick that up if you pick that up, but it won't be distracting if you don't know it. that's, That's fine, too. But then some of these other like figuring out the bigger question things that I think most of the Tolkien fandom has latched onto, that's also a real risk because they're laying some groundworks that don't necessarily pay off. And if they do pay off, they might not pay off yet. So it's a huge ask of the audience, right? You're asking them to just kind of trust the process, to take a step back and take it in. Just see what this journey is going to be and try to not get distracted by the things that might mislead you. So there's really almost a contract negotiated between the show creators and the viewer. But the viewer is such a divided audience. And that doesn't have to be a, a negative thing. You know, when you say divided, that usually means like <laughs> pick one side or the other. It just means there's two separate camps. But this show really does seem to work for both of them. But I also don't know if it's working perfectly for any of them. There's a lot of stuff laid in that is giving the Tolkienists a lot to dig into, a lot to discuss, a lot of lore. It's obviously been a lot of fun for us. (laughs) So there's a lot to to go into. But then for the layperson and, and the friends that I've spoken to that are not Tolkien fans, they're also enjoying it. There's enough there that isn't throwing them, that isn't necessarily confusing them. And that just is, is a fine line to walk. So I do think they're asking a lot of their audience. you got to pay attention to this one, right? There's a lot of characters. There's a lot of moving pieces. And I still stand by my concern with some of the pacing and wish that we had spent more time with some of these characters, you know, a whole episode for one or two storylines instead of all six. Um, because it really wasn't until the storyline started to converge that I personally engaged. So I do wonder for a layperson if there might have been more strength in that, get them invested early and then introduce more detail. But I can't change that now. So it's more of just an interesting choice that they've made to get us there. So whether you're a layperson or whether you're a Tolkien fan, you may not love it, a lot hate it, a lot think it's perfection, a lot think it has a lot to work with. There's, there is obviously that range of reaction from the audience But there's a lot in place for those people as well. So I feel like they've really walked that line well in terms of adaptation creation and audience expectation. They're asking you to put the work in. They're asking you to pay attention, learn some of the names, learn some of the rules, but also to suspend belief, take it all in. Uh, And so far, I'm on board. Obviously, there are things that we've been concerned about, and I look forward to season two to see what the next step is. But so far, the negotiation of that and the navigating of this adaptive process – has been really lovely, (laughs) really lovely to engage with and really lovely to observe. So as we now have these established characters, the expectation is going to be a little bit different going into season two. It kind of made me think about the Harry Potter adaptations, if you're familiar with those. The first two films were so faithful to the books to the point that they weren't really super interesting films, uh, but they were really faithful. They kept the story exactly as it was from the book. But then once the the... Characters were established, the landscapes were established, everybody understood the story, and their viewership had expanded way beyond just the book readers. It went wide world. So loads of people were coming to the Harry Potter films that were not readers of the Harry Potter films, of books. So by the third film, they could take that creative liberty and go off on these tangents uh, and be a bit more... Uh, loose in what they depicted in the stories they invented some characters they were a little bit more laid back in some of the interactions and I feel like as films they really started to flourish with Prisoner of Azkaban we might have something similar with this we have had a whole season of extreme foundation laying and sometimes that can be tough because cement is not very thrilling right we need a strong foundation but because of that and we're now seeing these actors start on their big arc they are now starting to move on to what's going to be next. So we have this strong foundation, and now we get to see where they go after this. And that's really exciting. So I'm almost more excited for season two than I was for season one because, all right, we've done the work. I've put it in. You've put it in. Let's see where we go next. How they go? What happens next? Who we follow? I'm here for it.
0: The stranger's character is one which achieves a happy resolution at the end of episode eight. Um, So I was, I've been watching, of course, The Stranger with much interest, and from the beginning, I was pretty sure that he was a wizard. He certainly looked wizardly, um, and it was awesome to see that officially confirmed. Um, the word istar is the word that is used of him by the uh, Death Moth ladies in the confrontation, um, and, uh, and then he explains that, of course, to Nori afterwards, saying that that would be wise one uh, in her tongue or wizard. Uh, and, of course, those two words are uh, wizard is... Is, is derived from wise one. Um, and so that, of course, is indeed the derivation of the word istar, of which the plural is istari, which means the wizards. That's what the essay in Unfinished Tales is called, explaining about the wizards. So, um, so we definitely learned that he was, he's absolutely a wizard. Now... The only question that remains is exactly which wizard is he? And we received some information about this, um, uh, though it was not as definite as the fact that he was a wizard. That was the one thing definitely confirmed. Um, So what we see, there are two things that I think are really important to this. I've been saying from the beginning that I believe that he is a blue wizard. And I think we get two very clear pieces of evidence that point in that direction in this episode. Um, One, the most intriguing one, is the other thing that the, the Death Moth ladies say when they call him Istar. They say he's not Sauron, he's the other one. Istar. Um, so the other one is really interesting. Now, of course, that could mean a couple things. That is, like, maybe there were, like, two possible people they were looking for, one of whom was Sauron and the other of whom was another dude, like a wizard, uh, some random wizard who is not Sauron. So by the other one, they mean the one who isn't Sauron, right? Uh, that is one possible interpretation of that phrase. It seems to me very likely that by the other one, they mean the other blue wizard. Remember I said last week that there are two blue wizards and I think it very likely. I still think it very likely. Indeed. I think it rather more likely than I did last week that they're going to depict the two blue wizards, that one of them, the stranger is going to remain faithful who comes second and that the other one who arrived first is going to have become corrupt that he is going to be have fallen into evil and have established his sorceress cult of which to which presumably uh, the death moth ladies are attached. Um, so though, that, that was one really interesting piece of information, him being called not only wizard, but the other one. But the second and much bigger one is their destination. In the end, the fact that we're told that the mystics are coming from Hrunn, out in the east. Um, the word Hroon just means east. It's the eastern part of the map. Um, and that, of course, is where the Blue Wizards went. And the Blue Wizards are the only ones who went into the east. Saruman is going to have his job, and we know what, what's going to happen to him. Radagast has his job, and although we don't exactly know precisely what Radagast's job is, apart from hanging out with birds and beasts, which is a perfectly respectable thing to do, and no harm to him for doing so, we don't exactly know what his plan was, but we know where he does it, and it's not out in And of course, Gandalf explicitly says, to the east, I go not. When he is, when Faramir is reporting what Gandalf told him about his travels, Gandalf said that the east is the one place he had not gone. That he did not go. Um, So, who went to the East? The blue wizards went to the east that 's their entire story that they went off into the East and did their thing, whether it was staying faithful or whether it was becoming evil and becoming the head of uh, of magic sorcery cults um, so that the blue that the wizard right that the stranger and Nori are heading off into Haroon for adventures as yet unknown in order to accomplish we're not yet sure what, but probably interacting with whatever source of supernatural and magical evil they were encountering representatives of uh, in these last episodes. That fits precisely with the story of the Blue Wizards. Now, I know, a lot of people are saying, are you kidding? It's been practically confirmed that this guy is Gandalf. They've been dropping Gandalf hints all along the way. I absolutely agree. There have been many, many parallels to Gandalf, many references to Gandalf from the Lord of the Rings films, culminating, of course, with that very explicit quotation about following your nose at the very end, right? Absolutely agree. He has been paralleled with Gandalf all over the place. A couple things I would note about this. First, the mere fact that he quotes a line from Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings films, hardly constitutes proof of identification that he's Gandalf. After all, in episodes seven and eight, no, 6 and 7, Galadriel quoted Arwen from the Lord of the Rings films twice. Does that prove she's really Arwen in disguise? No. Elrond quoted Gimli from the Fellowship of the Ring. Does that prove he's really Gimli? No. So, I, again, like the, 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 there have been so many overlaps with the films. The mere fact that they've been established... What I am getting from this, all of these Gandalf hints that we've been getting, which again i absolutely see i'm not denying a single one of them or the parallel the relationship with hobbits agreed all that stuff is much like gandalf but you know who else is like gandalf other wizards are also like gandalf gandalf is the only wizard we come to know we meet saruman he's very different from gandalf he's already fallen he's become an evil wizard we meet radagast Briefly. We don't even meet Radagast briefly. We hear a secondhand story about meeting Radagast briefly. We don't know anything about Radagast. So what do we know about wizards? What wizards are like? How they act? 95% of it is Gandalf because he's the wizard that is talked about ever in the books, right? So therefore, if you're writing the show and you want to send signals to the viewers, this guy is a wizard, This guy's remember the the real question, the question that the, the the show has been demanding that an answer to about the stranger has not exactly been, who are you exactly? The question that keeps getting asked is: are you good or are you a peril? Right? Are you are you dangerous? Are you evil or are you good? And we have seen Nori's faith and confidence there, which got shaken for a little but then reasserted at the end of episode seven and into episode eight. And we've seen the final, what seems clearly to be uh, the final answer to that. He is definitely good. So how do they signal that he's good? How do they let you know so that you're prepared for that answer? It's not really meant, I think, to be a shock and surprise when it's unveiled at the end. We've been seeing evidence that he's good. One of the primary ways we've been given evidence not only that he's good, but also that he's good in a wizardly kind of way, which is deliberately, clearly parallel to Gandalf, is by all of these references and quotations to get us in a wizardly frame of mind as we are watching, even a Gandalfian frame of mind. It's good for us to be thinking about how those two are alike. That sets us up to follow the stranger's story as it's gonna continue to develop, presumably in its own direction. I will say this though. Does this does any of this stuff that I'm saying prove that it's not Gandalf? Well, not necessarily. It's theoretically possible that Gandalf that they could have decided that Gandalf came early. Remember According to Tolkien's writings, the Blue Wizards did come during the Second Age. Later on in his life, he he decided. Um, There is a version of of their stories, of the Blue Wizard stories, where Tolkien said they came during the Second Age, during this time. Um, There was never any such story like that with Gandalf. Yes, there are references of Gandalf wandering around and appearing places, but not in the flesh. That's just him in the spirit kind of keeping an eye on things. Not a kind of bodily manifestation like that. There's nothing like this with Gandalf. But they could have changed that. Maybe they changed that. Maybe they decided, hey, we're going to bring in a wizard. Let's make it Gandalf. Who doesn't love Gandalf? We'll make it Gandalf. Possible. Can't rule it out. Nor would I loathe that if it happens, nor do I think it would be any massive violation that would cause huge troubles. I still... It wouldn't be my choice. I wouldn't like that. I think it's costly because it's cool. Gandalf arriving late is cool. Arriving late, getting the Ring of Power when he gets off the boat, I like that story. I think that's a really interesting and important part of the Third Age, which I'd miss if that got changed, but I could live with it, right? But I will say this, no matter what, whether he turns out to be Gandalf or not, which I think he's not, but if whether he turns out to be Gandalf or not, he's playing the role of a blue wizard. That's clear. That's almost perfectly clear. He's headed off into Rune. He's going to be opposing some other wizard, it sounds like. And apparently there seem to be sketchy magic cults out there in the east. This is the story of the blue wizards. Only the blue wizards did that. So if it is Gandalf, Gandalf is dressed up as the blue wizard and fulfilling their story. doing the, you know He's... he's Taking part, they're giving to Gandalf the story of the Blue Wizards. In which case, hey, I guess that means we can all be happy, right? Blue Wizard, Gandalf, why not both? That would seem to be the answer. If he is Gandalf, he's both Gandalf and a blue. He's blue Gandalf, right? Um, If he's not Gandalf, then he's just a blue wizard. One way or another, I think we can live with it. But it was really interesting to see. And I am now, I'm, I'm primed of all of the stories that we're getting ready for in the Second Age. One of the ones I am most interested in is the story of the stranger and Nori as they go off on their adventure into Hroon. This is parts unknown. Tolkien never described them. I don't know what storylines are going to await them out there, how those storylines are going to connect back to the rest of the story. Um, I think that's going to be a really interesting adventure that I'm certainly looking forward to. Good evening. Thank you all for coming out. I, I admit I hoped for a larger turnout, uh, as I know how dear our lost friend Halbrand was to so many, but I I understand that Muriel wasn't able to find her way here, and I think that Alendo had a different funeral to attend, which is perfectly understandable, but I had hoped Galadriel might make it. I can't think why she's not here, but we'll we'll move on. We have many things to say about our friend Halbrand, but uh, first, I think it would be fitting uh, to hear from one who really knew the real Halbrand that all of us knew and loved. So uh, I have his childhood friend, Magwin, to come up and share some reminiscences that I know we will all treasure.
1: It's a sad day. It's a sad day. Our dear Hal Brand has left us. He was filled with so much promise. There was so much hope in his life. I mean, he had, he had some tough times growing up. You know, we kind of grew up on the wrong side of the, the tracks and he did his best whenever he could. He, he pulled up by his brute straps, became an apprentice at a young age, really started to hone his craft of metalsmithing, and we had a lot of hope for him on that. And, you know, on that gap year when he learned how to sail and got on a boat and hoped for the best and ended up, you know, trying his hand at becoming part of a guild. And, and there it, it was just so much promise in his life. I, I remember this time when we were young, and he was just, you know bullying the kids as you do and knocking them out left, right, and center and just, you know, Halbrand. And then he found this guy on the side of the road and picked up this trinket, found out he was dead. He thought it was hysterical. <laughs> but uh, we're going to miss him. We're going to miss him. He was a good guy. He was a good friend. Well, most of the time. He was always there for you. Well no, except when he was running away. He's always good with a laugh and a right hook. But we're gonna miss you, bud. Miss you.
0: Thank you. Thank you thank you for that. What can we say about Halbrand? Halbrand had A wide diversity of skills that I think we all appreciated. His skill at the forge was quite remarkable, advanced for his age, I think most would agree. Uh, uh, We thought he might live to advise some of the greatest, but alas, that doesn't look like being able to happen now. He, of course, did have pronounced fighting skills, which doesn't seem very nice, but it's a rough world down there in the Southlands, and they need to take care of themselves and anybody else who might try to get in their way or prevent them from surviving or be in front when you're trying to escape. He could take a punch. He was really almost as good at being abused... As he was at abusing others. (laughs) Sorry. His ability at sleight of hand. Oh, how he used to delight the children at parties. I just knew that one day he would put those skills to good use. He had surprising skills. As a diplomat, really, it, 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 occasionally he would come out with these wise sayings that I know I've always taken to heart. Um, his uh, abilities as an equestrian, even under extreme circumstances, you know, this almost nothing could happen to him that would keep him off a horse, really, or induce him to fall if once he were upon a horse. You could do whatever you liked, and he could ride for weeks on end, I'm sure. Um, yeah, it's true that his personal hygiene was none of the highest quality, but we never held that against him after all. It's the Southlands. None of us bathe very regularly. Um, his swimming ability, particularly for one born in a landlocked region, (laughs) inspiring. It was, it was, um, brand. Was one of those true kinds of friends, who would always tell you how it really was. You always knew where you stood with Halbrand, right? He would just—he would always give it to you straight. He was a model prisoner. Um, I would even sometimes, again, I give words of advice to the guards, and that's just how thoughtful. He was at all times. Uh, There are many other things, of course, that others have said about Halbrand. He was a really remarkable fulfillment of the archetype of the long-lost king returned to his throne. I found that very satisfying. You know, there are others who have said they remind him of some other king that they'd heard of whose people had been without a king for a thousand years until this guy came out of the wilderness, also not high on personal hygiene in his own experience, but nevertheless proved an excellent king. And I believe that Halbrand would have fallen in his footsteps. I, I I really think that was that was the clear path that was being led for him. It's surprising, as many would find it. I I he enjoyed A reign as king of the Southland, which, though admittedly brief, was memorable. It was a time of peace, a time of reconciliation, when the Southlands really began to explore its identity to the fullness. And during his reign, joy spread throughout the land from one end to the next. And then 10 minutes later... (laughs) The volcano exploded. And that wasn't his fault. His community spirit, right? I mean, when he was signed up for a job, even if he didn't volunteer, even if it wasn't his idea, maybe even against his principles, he's trying to go in a different way. He was willing self-sacrificially, I would add, to agree to do that job. And I think, I think we all admire him in our hearts And I'm quite sure that I miss him. And I always may miss him. Thank you all for coming. This has meant a lot to me personally. Good night.
1: Happened. happened? Yeah,
0: No, it didn't. We were waiting for it to happen, but it didn't even happen. I mean, they totally didn't kiss.
1: Not that, Corey. Not that. Oh, 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 oh,
0: oh. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, yes and no.
1: What do you mean? We had Halbrands. We don't have Halbrands. <laughs> well, we mean... have Sauron.
0: Okay. So, let me ask you this, right? I'm thinking... How do we know that Halbrand is Sauron? I mean, like, how do we really know that Halbrand is Sauron?
1: Because he said he was Sauron.
0: Well, yeah. Of course. Can you believe (laughs) anybody who says that he's Sauron? I mean, look. Where in the show?
1: When you pause it, it says Sauron now, not Halbrand.
0: Paratext, whatever. (laughs) Don't look inside the world of the show. Yeah. What evidence is there, direct evidence, mind, that Halbrand? Is Sauron.
1: I feel like I could list a lot of things, but you're just gonna deny them dream all. Dream
0: sequence. Dream sequence, mm. right? It all comes out. There's suspicions and Galadriel's all suspicious. But you know what? Like it it might be misdirection, right? And then she has this vision of someone so we're talking about a psychic vision induced by somebody who is attempting to deceive her, right? Right. What kind of evidence is that?
1: Well who's it gonna, gonna buy any Sauron, like
0: Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sauron would do that, but he's lying about being Halbrand, obviously. He's just messing with her.
1: You're in denial, man. <sighs> yes.
0: <laughs> but I think it's sound. I mean, look, I think it's I say the simplest reading is obviously the right one. So and the simplest thing is just, to, is just to deny the whole thing. Dream vision? Dream vision. Never happened.
1: Let's talk about some other options. Okay. I feel like it did happen, so you just hear me out. Okay. What about this idea of two Halbrands?
0: Brands? Okay. Two Halbrands. Brands. I can get behind this. Okay. Admittedly, I've been trying that out for a while. The, like, um, I admit, I have been... Thinking about this, been losing some sleep. I mean, it. And thinking about this. It's
1: been 24 hours. It's. No, still, it's still I mean, for
0: weeks I've been thinking about right. this. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, kind of bracing myself. Building right? up to this. Yeah. And I was like, I think option one clearly never happened. Right.
1: And never I think, became Sauron.
0: Yeah. I think I can pull it off.
1: Tell I, me. Right. Well,
0: again, no evidence. So I think it's fine unless you count the scene at the end.
1: He does show up.
0: A little embarrassing.
1: Right in Mordor. Yeah,
0: I was so ready, man. I was there, and I was like, I can deny all of this. It never happened. And then he appears. And then there he is. Last shot of season one, right? Bold as you please. Yeah. So,
1: Hard to deny that one.
0: Yeah. No, I was, I'm still... I wanted to see if I could still make it work, but I... Uh,
1: really can't make that work.
0: I, okay but the two the here's the thing what if i said this what if i said sauron is halbrand but halbrand is not sauron yeah yeah.
1: See, this one made sense to me. Yeah, I can get behind totally. that. Totally. So, okay. So okay. Because I mean, we've talked about it before. Yeah. We loved Halbrand. His arc was fantastic. Halbrand. Exactly. Great. Totally holds together. You know, together. like did something wrong, not feeling so yep. good about himself and his whole home life. Let's start afresh somewhere new. Yeah. Use those mad smithing skills. Make Absolutely. some awesome swords. Great Why not? Fresh start.
0: Yep. New friend Goadriel. Little Lovely. complicated. Got right? A bit of not a crush exactly. There. Feeding off each other in a yeah. productive and constructive way. But, you know, this happens in real life.
1: And there were a couple questionable mean moments of him, but it wasn't sure. like... Not the most
0: respectable kid, but that's fine. Yeah. He can be a good character and his story can work without him being totally admirable. And guess what? You can be a not totally admirable character without, in fact, being a demigod trying to take over the world. Right. I feel confident in saying that.
1: And where we see the switch of him being this, like, lovely little Halbrand, who's a bit of a you know, scrappy guy is when he is found on the side of the road.
0: See, that's with... what I'm all about. Okay, so here's the thing. Off wound. Yeah, yeah. It works, right? Yeah. Totally works. If Halbrand, so Halbrand in episode eight, I mean, okay, Sauron at that point, right? Apparently. Now, I mean, really Sauron, but apparently Halbrand. Because, yeah, we've got that dodgy moment, side of the road, right? Everybody scatters. Volcano explodes. Everybody scatters. Right? What happens? Nobody knows what happens. Right? Halbrand by himself, found alone. Yeah. Not only found alone with a wound. With a wound. Nobody else a had stab that stab wound. Yeah. No one. No one is getting attacked. They were crushed
1: legs. There the was orcs were flesh. all.
0: They were kicking back. There were no right? sword sword wounds. No. 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 No yeah. sword wounds. There are people who were injured in the
1: and highly suspicious. State. They found him on the side of the road. I know, right? Mm.
0: Yeah. Exactly. So, here's the theory then. Halbrand's dead. He died at that point. So Halbrand, episode one through seven, still Halbrand, right? Then he dies. This also, of course, explains, so then Sauron then takes over. Now, so you must say, well, hang on a second. How does Sauron, when he's tempting Galadriel in episode eight, know so much about the past with Halbran, right? Well, there are two different mechanisms by which he could theoretically have done that, right? One is we know that it is possible for creatures of... Powerful minds and wills right. to read the minds and memories of others. So it's he could have met Halbrand, gotten his memories, often replaced him, right? Easy as you please. Transference acceptable. Alternatively, Sauron was known as the necromancer before this. Could have found Sauron's corpse, had a little chat with it. That's what necromancers do. Gotten the information off his corpse. Excellent right?
1: bargaining here, Corey. Hey, no, look, I On think it, it
0: works. So then, then, Sauron... Fakes the wound, fakes the septic wound. This, of course, also explains how he could ride for several weeks with a septic wound, right? Because he's faking it the whole time anyway, right? right? Gets back to Irregian, where he came from originally, and everything's fine, right? Back to work on Celebrimbor. And now, bonus, Goadriel falling into his lap because now he's got the whole Halbrand thing going on. And they were riding for weeks, so he probably found out more and everything is able to play that up a little bit more. And so, boom. You've got episode eight explained. Halbrand's story intact. Who says no?
1: I mean, I have to say, I kind of agree with that one. But a whole lot of people say no. Like, there is some serious emotion out there about this. Yeah. Don't you? You feel kind of reactive to that? I've been, been hearing this.
0: I've been hearing this. You know, I'm. I've been. You know. I don't like to get angry about these kinds of things. I,
1: I understand that. You don't want to rise to that. But no. there's definitely an evocative feeling going on in this.
0: <sighs> yeah.
1: This is a safe space, Corey.
0: I've been holding it in.
1: Yeah, let it out, man.
0: Okay. Here's the thing. Look, I'm willing to accept the two how brand theory seems like a lot, right? Yeah. I get it. I get it. But I ask you, what is the alternative What exactly is the alternative? He's Sauron all along? On a ship. How does that make sense? From one end to the next, how does that make sense? And it's worse than that. It's worse than the story not making sense. It makes no sense of the rest of it.
1: Tell me why. Okay, look, look, look.
0: What's up in Linden? We never even learn what's up in Linden. Who poisoned the tree? Free somebody. You can't tell me on. somebody didn't poison that tree. Somebody
1: poisoned that tree. Somebody poisoned that tree. Obviously, somebody poisoned that tree. gil Gallat is not acting cool. No,
0: gil Gallat is... There's something wrong with Gil-Galot.
1: is acting a little shifty as well.
0: Very much so. Very much like somebody under the influence of somebody else. So
1: you're saying our unknown facts of what's going on there right now is adding to your confusion and understanding of how... Very bad.
0: much. Mm. Very much. Very much. So, okay, look. So people are like, oh, well... Halbrand Sauron could have gone north and then been started things off in Linden and Erechian and then left on a boat for some reason. I have no idea what reason he's doing this for. So, I, like, seriously, not who, who, who can tell me why Sauron gets on a boat?
1: I don't know. Maybe I just want to go for a sail.
0: I know. Yeah, that's an yeah. important part of the strategic <laughs> process. But no, look. Okay, so then they say. Then they say, oh, he's repenting. Sauron is like, no, no, leaving it all behind, right?
1: There was that idea. Yeah. That doesn't make sense.
0: Okay, no. So first of all, in Tolkien, it's mentioned that Sauron might have repented a long time ago. But still, hey, look, we're bringing everything to the end of the Second Age, right? So let's bring Sauron's repentance to the end of the Second Age as well. Except it doesn't work. Unlike the other chronological shifts, that shift makes no sense. Because, look, Linden, we just said Brand Sauron was up there causing trouble, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, no, he could easily do that. And then get on a boat. What? And then repent afterwards? Oh, gosh, I feel kind of bad about the fact that I misled Celebrimbor. I bet I'm going to go back and do it again, though, pretty soon, right? But I'm getting on the boat, right? I'm getting on a boat for because I'm repenting. And then what? Like, then he coincidentally he meets Galadriel and it's like yeah. the whole chance meeting thing between Galadriel and human Halbrand
1: is great yes makes sense that's the kind of chance meeting we, we're supposed to see right and but then, a strategic meeting
0: yeah on a scrap of wood right this is Sauron's plan this is his mm-hmm. cunning plan mm-hmm. I'm going to Numenor for what what is he going to Numenor for people are like Sauron just wanted to get to Numenor he was taking the express ferry to Numenor with a bunch of Southlander refugees Right? I'm going to commandeer the southern refugee ship and take it to Numenor. Right? Okay, why? How does that make sense? He
1: doesn't attack Numenor? He doesn't have any desire to attack Numenor?
0: Not until they get in the way.
1: Really?
0: I mean, he never... He's just, it's not like he has a master plan to utilize Numenor in his plans. He wants to sink Numenor. He wants to destroy Numenor. And they're not even in his way yet. They're, they're fine. They're out of the way. He's involving them by going at all. Right? And anyway, then he gets there. What's his plan? What's the cunning plan to take down Numenor? Right? Like, I'm going to make myself advisor to the king and start a cult of human sacrifice. Sure, that's a game plan with a proven success rating, right? But look, I'm going to go and I'm going to, like, undermine the Numenorian culture one swiped guild badge at a time? Right? I'm going to undermine the fabric of society by forging some surprisingly good blades, which might
1: be of good service to their Numenorian masters? Not the most effective plan. No. 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 no very indirect. I would also be pretty case. angry about this, not to yeah, lie.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. No, but then Again, this is all supposed to work. So, okay, so now first he's repenting, then he's not repenting. Oh, and by the way, Adar, right? Adar is like, oh, we go way back and he's been killing my children until I told him to stop and split him open, right? Concerning which, okay, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. Maybe Sauron gets better, fine, whatever. But again, this is not a repentant Sauron we're talking about. He's been running the plan, which leads up to the Rings of Power from the very beginning, from the beginning of when we hear of him. We've seen the physical evidence in the ice castle up in the north, Right? Mm. So, I've been trying, man. I've been trying. I've been trying to make it work. I've tried. I've sat there. I've I've been I've been working hard, very hard on this, and I just can't make it work. This is why I've been saying, look, I'm not just. I have nothing against the idea. Sure. It's it's like a knee jerk emotional reaction. Like I'm offended. By Hal Brand being Sauron. I mean, I like Hal Brand. He seems like a great guy. Well, that's not true. But he seems like an interesting <laughs> character in yeah. any case. And I'm like, okay, fine. I, I can, I, let's, well, uh, you know, but...
1: Um, we can roll with a lot of punches. But there are a few... But it's got to make sense. You yeah. know, it's got to make yeah, sense. Yeah, that and must I, be tough.
0: It's been a little tough. It's it's
1: it's been a rough couple of days. It's been a rough couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, it's true. I'm,
1: You're right. I'm coping.
0: Oh, Corey. I've been coping. I,
1: You're not looking so great, man.
0: Well, I just got to tell you, there. I had this horrible thought. uh Oh. Well, because again, I'm arguing and saying, oh, it doesn't make sense, and I want it to make sense, and if we look at it this way, it makes sense, and then it occurred to me it's a horrible realization maybe i really like that kind of story you, you know?
1: do yeah. yeah this is this is your thing Like
0: the more richly compl- complex the better maybe maybe they didn't make this show just for me oh no i know right is that
1: where you're going
0: well that's i'm starting to fear you that might, might be true you think might
1: be an audience beyond the Tolkien professor i
0: can't I mean, it didn't make sense at first, but in the end, I've had to confront it. And
1: They might need a simple answer in this one. It's a
0: dark world, you uh, know? I mean, I, I guess...
1: It's pretty depressing. Unless... Oh, tell me.
0: what is a second. Wait a second. I never thought of this. What if there's a bigger con being run here? Where are you going? What if Sauron... Oh, no. ...replaced episode eight? Oh, for the love. Because that would explain... It's only episode eight, right? I mean, up until episode eight, everything was fine. Totally fine. I mean, I'd been worried about it, but I'm like, no, I can make it... I th- I think... I think it
1: might... I think it might work, and... I think I've, you've had a little too much, man. Just... No, I, I, I...
0: So, it's... Because if you think it through, there are several pieces of evidence that suggest that it's, it doesn't fit with everything else, and that there's some characteristic errors that they made. That I, I think it'll be fine. It'll it'll be fine. It's fine. I'm fine.
1: Cory, (laughs) Cory, come on, (laughs) Cory! We gotta go, it's the Midnight Watch Party! Episode eight's on! Come on, let's go, let's go!
0: I had the worst dream. Well, here we are at the end of season one. And so before we begin to go into the off season, Prior to Season 2, we thought we would take a look at each of the primary storylines that are set up for Season 2 and just talk a little bit about what we're expecting based on what we've seen in Season 1. What are we looking to see in Season 2 from each of these lines?
1: So we've talked a lot about like the foundations that were laid, and it's, it's been pretty solid and pretty serious and getting to know everybody. Yeah. But they're all kind of switching to the start of their big arc. So, you know, what's happening next? So starting with the Stranger.
0: Right, we got the Stranger in Nori mm-hmm. right, know, heading off into Haroon.
1: He knows who he is, first of all. That or at is least a big what he is, yeah, which is it, a big deal. Yeah. All of a sudden, he's much more able to communicate, you know, the, the language speaks, that came syntactic in. syntactic sentences. Beautiful. It's great, yeah,
0: exactly. Um, uh, and therefore, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how their relationship develops. Mm-hmm. One thing, right? I mean, she has been in many, in, not in many ways, in almost every way, the leader, right? He's been almost helpless at times, and now... As his memory is mm-hmm. returning, there is this almost sudden shift, right, where he is looking like he's now he's the wise one, mm-hmm. right? And she is going to be looking up to him. So it'll be interesting to see how to that, see that goes. see that dynamic. And I
1: was going to say, she's also been the leader, but she's also been on a very trodden path and has kind of ridden the wave, so to speak. Right. Now she's very much off path. and yeah. And, you know, yeah. he was waiting for her. They're about to go into the unknown. Yeah. But as two very strong characters coming together. That's, that's cool. So yeah. we, we think he's going to go...
0: He's going to Rune. Rune is a fascinating place in Tolkien's world. Uh, Fascinating because we know almost nothing about Mm it. Um, Other than the fact that we know that you know, all of the most ancient cultures in Middle Earth originated in the East. The general pattern of almost everybody who lives in in Middle Earth is ultimately migrating from the East towards the West. So to go back towards the East is sort of to go backwards in history. um, And therefore, I'm expecting to see, like, really, like, cool old ruins and evidence Mm -hmm. of ancient human cultures possibly ancient elvish cultures as well. What exactly the threats are, I'm not sure. Sauron is known there, obviously, mm-hmm. as we discovered there in, in episode eight. What kind of hold does he already have? Um, what are they gonna be doing against it? Nori, um, so we, you know, we have the stranger as obviously at least parallel to Gandalf and his relationship with the hobbits. And you know, Nori has been this sort of Frodo-esque character, mm-hmm. but unlike Frodo, she does not have a clear quest. Right. Right. She doesn't have any ring to destroy. She just
1: has this drive, this pull. Exactly. First of all, to leave. She's always been very interested in the adventure. Yeah. But now also this looking after him, this caring, this kindness.
0: Right. I mean, I think we have every reason to believe that she was right to think that the two of them have been brought together Mm -hmm. for a purpose, but we don't yet know what that purpose is. And this is, I think, going to be a really interesting challenge for that team, for the writing team in season two. Mm -hmm. Because what is it exactly that not only the Stranger can accomplish, but the Stranger can better accomplish with, with a Harford yeah. sidekick, yeah. right, than we, and, and you know...
1: It requires her to stay vital in exactly. the Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: How is she going to stay vital? Well, again, with with the with the Fellowship of the Ring, it's easy, right? Frodo is, of course, the central employee. He's, he's the ring bearer. Yeah. There's no analog Well, and I would here. guess
1: she's either going to get a quest or have some sort of a purpose, but I think for that, the wizard is going, to, the stranger's going to go off and do his own thing, whatever that quest is, with her help, but I think she's going to have her own trajectory and right. we're going to see Poppy again.
0: Oh, yeah. I think their paths are going yeah, to cross again. Yeah, exactly. And so that reminds me of the other Harfoot group, right? Because yep. um, as I was suggesting earlier, now that Nori and Poppy, now that Poppy stayed behind, I thought we might just kind of abandon the Harfoots for a while and go off with Nori and Poppy because I was expecting her to come. Now that she's stayed behind, I think we're going to get yeah. a, pl- a plot line from them. They're sort of continuing mm, on their migration they're still wandering yeah we know that they so they're going to try to you know, I know it's like the new normal of the mm-hmm. harfoot world now right without sadak without their wagons so things are different they're going to be they're going to be in a different well, I was about to say a different place. Same place, yeah. geographically, as far as we can tell. Um, are they going to be involved with confronting, confronted by the regional problems? They're yeah, still like, what, are near going, what
1: are they going to encounter, exactly? Right. Their normal might not exist anymore, so maybe that's what drives them to a different location. I'm waiting for them to settle. I, like, at some yeah, point, we're I was going thinking to about have that too. a stopping of migration and, and the beginning of Hobbiton.
0: It's, yeah, it's possible that um, the Harfoot... The wandering Harfoots, right? Um, That their main storyline is not going to be like accomplishing something big in the overall, you know, Sauron storyline or whatever, um, but showing the change of the Harfoots and Mm -hmm. the 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 beginning of yeah them settling down. Are they gonna maybe meet one of the? I mean, I would love to meet. There were three proto Hobbit. Like groups, groups yeah. right? The yeah. Harfoots, the Fallohides, and the Stores. The Stores are particularly important because that's the group that Gollum is ultimately descended from. Right. Um, so, meeting like the ultimate, the, you know, the ancestors of Gollum still a ways back, thousands of years before Gollum himself. But still, himself. something but still, familiar. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, to, to kind of get that set up um, is, would be cool. So, I don't know if we're going to get to see, now that we've seen this one different proto hobbit society, are we going to get to see another? Maybe the Harfoots meet them? I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, I, and I don't, I mean, I don't want to speculate too much, but I yeah. guess the thing that yeah. I can get a little bit concerned about is how many things we met in this first one and how much I appreciated and enjoyed that time with yes. those more singular episodes right. and those right. groups, those ones where we just saw one or two groups. So I hope we get to see some of that stuff for like world building. But I also want to spend more time with the people we have just started to getting claw to know. Lines exactly. More and more. Yeah, no, yeah. I hear
0: that. I hear that. I'm gonna yeah. skip
1: over the next one for a minute we'll come back to it. So okay. let's go on to Oregon and Linden.
0: Oregion and Linden, yeah, we can talk about those together. Yeah. Um clearly the big Oregion question. We've got the rings of power. And the that, Elven Rings of Power, the three.
1: That's also where a giant mystery is, because there's some stuff going on there that we don't have explanations for yet. Why right. are they so rushed? Yeah. Why is Gilgallad asking acting exactly. the way he is, and I I still...
0: Officially, for the record, do not believe in the fading of the elves as it's been described. I don't believe that the elves are actually going to be doomed by spring. Um, I think that they're wrong about that. Um, I will be very surprised if that turns out to be literally true exactly as it's been described. And I still suspect that Elrond is going to discover that. Is going to work that out? Do you out. think
1: there's still going to be a purpose for things to happen there, or you know, I mean, there's still more rings to forge. Will they happen there, or will they happen elsewhere?
0: <sighs> That's a big question, right? Because um, one of the significant effects of the narrative choices made in Episode Eight is the rapid acceleration of the forging of the of the Elven rings, especially. And also, we've already broken. Now, Celebrimbor has not personally had a falling out with Sauron, mm-hmm. right? But also it looks like the Anatar window is closed. Let me explain just a minute what I mean by the Anatar window, right? In Tolkien's stories, Sauron in the form of a fair creature named Anatar comes and deceives Celebrimbor and says, hi, I've been sent to help. I can help you with your foraging. And Celebrimbor's like, that sounds great. What do you want to work on together? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Rings of power. How does that sound? And Celebrimbor's like, that sounds great. Let's do that. Um, not for world dominion, you it's understand. Word for word Anatar's summary. like, no, not world dominion. I'm sure it won't come to that. And Celebrimbor's like, good, I'm glad we're on the same page. So they're working together. It's a buddy uh. project. The rings of power, right? And we're distributing, we're doing, we're like testing it out with little rings, which we kind of chuck out because we don't really care. They're not a big deal. And then we make the great rings, right, culminating in the three elven rings. Culminating mind. In the three elven rings. And then... Anatar sneaks back to Mount Doom and he's like, I'm going to forge the one ring that will rule them all. And as soon as he does, Celebrimbor is aware of him, like knows that he's doing it. And he's like, dude. It took him
1: long enough. Yeah,
0: we're out. Like, forget it. I see what you're up to. We're not doing this anymore. So lore, um, lore-wise,
1: y- we've got a problem then because we don't have all these rings yet.
0: Well, but exactly. actual
1: step back and look at the story-wise, do we need them? It's doing okay.
0: Well, no, we totally need them. We can't. Well, we can't. So we, we can't have forged. any Nazgul if we don't get any. And we, we 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 we're gonna have the seven and the nine. Like that's clear. Yeah. And the one. So like the major rings that we didn't have any minor rings. No big deal. That they changed the sequence. It can work. I don't know how it's gonna work exactly. Um, the one big question is: Is Celebrimbor gonna forge more rings that are gonna become corrupted by Sauron somehow later on? Like there's the no way the they've seven?
1: probably already forged the rings because he's just figured out that two metals D- yeah,
0: combined. Yeah, exactly. One. Right. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. a new. <laughs> yeah. that's a new technology. But I so, do think we're going to yeah.
1: have a flashback. I do think we're going to have some sort of a backwards time to see what happened to cause the rush. Yeah. Like this if three I months If I could make timeline. a
0: personal request, episode one, season two. Meanwhile, in Linden, several months before the end of season <laughs> one. And then we do a backstage Linden episode, which explains everything and makes me happy.
1: Oh, good luck with that. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see how Thank that goes.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I'm writing it in my head right now. Great. That's probably where it will live, but it's okay. Anyway, we need the seven and the nine. That yeah. has to happen, right? But again, there are two options. One is that Celebrimbor is like, that was awesome. I want, you know, want 15 more. Right. right. And so we do that, and then, it go- and then we get the distribution question, and then Sauron does a hostile takeover from outside, right, on the ring yeah. question. The other option is that Sauron forges them, right? He's like, hey, okay, that was great. Now I, you know...
1: I can make my own furnace.
0: I can make my own. I got a the handy volcano, so I'm going to make rings, and then he goes around, you know, with like a little tray mm-hmm. on straps, and mm-hmm. is like, rings for sale, rings for sale, get them while you're hot. Dwarves, humans, come
1: one, all But right. everyone's already a little bit suspicious to him now, because Galadriel's warns. Well,
0: first. only if he dresses up like Halbrand. Ah. He could dress up as somebody else that he kills and leaves by the side.
1: Right. Of the road.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: Okay. I'm not going back to that.
0: Okay. That. Anyway, so the point is, yes, that um, I'm sorry. I, that was irresponsible. But I'm not sorry. So <laughs> but anyway, so we know that the Rings of Power <laughs> are going to happen. That's, that, so that's still a big question. Yeah. Exactly where is this? Because, again, it was a, that was a, a genuinely accelerated piece of the yeah. timeline. How is this going to fit? How is the follow-up going to work? How soon is the Celebrimbor versus Sauron thing yeah. going to happen? Um, I admit I was expecting the Rings of Power development and distribution to really be like the majority of season two. Um, but things are... Things are are hasting along relatively quickly, it seems.
1: only in certain tracks. So I'm I'm still feeling like we need a few others to catch up. No, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Um, Whereas, again, in Linden, Linden. I'm still in a state of confusion. Mm. And so, again, I need need information. I need information about the tree.
1: And there's no one really there right now. There's not much happening right there. So I assume we go back. We do learn a bit more about that. And that's just going to be enlightenment. I don't see a lot of action happening in Linden. Also, I
0: will nominate... Gil-Galad for Comeback Player of the Year in yes. Season 2. Yes, yes. Well, we yeah.
1: haven't really met him yet, have we?
0: Well, no, I mean, I, not in the sense of, like, I don't believe in the Gil-Galad is locked in the closet theory. No. I think that although he's not been real pleasant to be around so far, he is still um, acting in a way that is consistent with somebody who is, uh, you know, concerned, right? He's the high king. He's, he feels responsibility for stuff. He believes... In the whole fading problem, right? That's his issue. Um, and having believed in it, he's taking it seriously yeah. and he's wanting to circumvent it or now we gotta go away. He's gotta take care of his people. Um, if it were true, it's genuine cause for alarm and his reaction to it is not inappropriate.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but, again, I don't believe it to be true, and so we'll see. But hopefully... I just
1: think we need more from him, too. Totally. You know, High totally. King, all of this responsibility. Um, yes. We just haven't gotten the, the Gil-Galad that we know. Yes, very little yet. screen
0: time so far. Mm-hmm. Really hoping for an increase mm-hmm. of that in season two uh, for, for Gil-Galad, for sure.
1: Now, if the whole of season two wants to take place in khazad Doom, I'm okay with that. Well, there's that. But yeah. what do you think is yeah. going to happen in khazad Doom?
0: Okay, so we left. We got a Balrog. We got a Balrog, but he's We have a chasm snoozing. of Mithril. He just, like, got up stretched, rolled back over and burned went to sleep. a Yeah, burned a leaf, barely noticed, so. I do
1: think we're gonna see him again because they have to yeah. maintain that threat, but I don't yeah. know if that's gonna come to like a full fruition in season two. It might just I be like it. this underlying Yeah, threat. I
0: guess. I mean, it, it's possible, I suppose. Sure. I mean, I guess one way to think about this, never really thought about it exactly like this before, we've got a pile of kingdoms to destroy, Yeah. right? I mean, we've got a long queue. There are a bunch of kingdoms just lined up, waiting for destruction and we can't do them all at once yeah right we, i mean you know i mean what, what are we going to like uh destroy kingdoms like the end of the godfather right at the end of season 4 or something it's not going to work right travel around a bit yeah so um if Numenor, which still looks to me like it's on an end of season mm. four kind of schedule for mm-hmm. its destruction, um, if that's going to happen, then it would make sense for Casa Doom to happen earlier because season five is too late. Mm. Like, if any any kingdom still around in season five is probably going to make it uh, because we need to focus on the Last Alliance or whatever. Maybe yeah. at the beginning or whatever, but still, uh, most likely not. So, um
1: so you think we'll just have like a continued threat through two that maybe maybe comes three, to two or at three. three? Okay. Two or
0: three, yeah. Because honestly,
1: oh, I'm the, not ready for two. No, this, st- I know, right? Well, it's too soon. Yeah,
0: it is too soon. Um, the the story of Durin and Disa started to unravel fast mm. in episode seven. I mean, there's that's it's it's fraying around the edges a little bit. I mean, I love those characters. I love those actors. I i, I but things are things are getting tense. Um, that final conversation between Duren and Disa genuinely concerning mm. about the trajectory of their characters. So if they're going to I don't know what they're going to do right. to try to regain his position to claim what is their own they're going to start their own independent mithril mining thing
1: in a completely different I don't know. But we definitely have a division there. So Definitely
0: a division there. I'm, i I would hope it would lead towards mm. reconciliation but again I do think ultimately we're leading towards destruction. So um but yeah, I think we're going to be following up on that. Uh, Durin and Disa, obviously the center of that. That's not saying much. Um, I have to say, I've been pleasantly surprised by how much I love King Durin. Mm. He's kind of. You want to hate season, him
1: because he seems like yes. that like oppressive father figure. And that, then you listen to what he's saying, and you're like, oh, damn, he's right you're every right. time. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I, mean,
0: I love Prince Durin, yeah. and so I want to be 100% on his side. But. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, the old goat who was yeah. absolutely right in everything <laughs> he said. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. The more I watch it, the more I'm compelled yeah. to that conclusion. And um, yeah. Yeah. So it's. Um,
1: and we could theoretically lose Durin Sr. Yep. But is Duran Jr. in a position to actually take the throne? Right. Or has he been dethroned? And
0: what then? Do we then just go fast track to Mithril mining, mining and right. Balrog city? Like, is that, uh, or I mean, it would seem, that would seem abrupt. Yeah. Right? So I don't know. But we do know um, they get
1: more Mithril, so we assume we're, we're going there. It's going to happen sooner
0: or later. Yeah. Right? I mean, at least it does in the book.
1: And I'm also interested to see what the relationship with the dwarves to the elves is because it's not great right now. It hasn't ended well. So we know and hope that there is more of a reconciliation coming soon, and I hope that's sooner rather than later. But I think they'll drag that out for a fair bit just to keep the tension up.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we were talking about this on the Twitch broadcast earlier today. Tolkien has a clearly, he speaks of a clearly established history of animosity between the dwarves and the elves, mm-hmm. right? Um, this is a known tension right. in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings. Now, there are Silmarillion-related stories behind that, but we can't tell Silmarillion-related stories in The Rings of Power show. Right. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if the tensions between them get emphasized in some way so that we can... prefer um,
1: that. Yeah, so yeah. that we, okay. we can,
0: so that. When we get to the third age, we have established within the frame of what the show can tell mm-hmm. uh, an animosity there. Though I would still point out the real, <laughs> the real, the new and updated uh, doors to Moria, the Western Gate, is not built yet. Mm-hmm. The Speak Friend and Enter Gate, mm-hmm. still not there, right? We have those like, you know, stone doors. With sliding the, doors. Yeah, the mm-hmm. sliding doors mm-hmm. still in place. Um, which means there's still time. Request number two. Narvi, season two. Perfect time to introduce Narvi. Narvi is one of the greatest craftsmen of the dwarves. He's the one who makes the doors. Makes the doors. In uh, and is working with Celebrimbor. They're like buds, right? Okay. So we okay. get some. So we
1: could see that. Yeah. He, he was.
0: He was not. Celebrimbor was not getting along well mm-hmm. with Dúrin, especially and the dwarves in general, right? He appreciated them. He respected them, but we didn't have a. We didn't have a personal connection there. So hey. Elf-dwarf friendship number two. Right. Hey, who says no? The and first one
1: went so well. That would help show the tension of the relationship as well, because you, if there is tension, then we need to see that, and butt of jokes is a good way to do that. Yeah. So if we have a new relationship that's able to kind of keep that dynamic going, yep. I can see that.
0: Yep. Uh, and also kind of humanize Celebrimbor a little bit, mm-hmm. which is nice. I know... My request kind of goes against your can we not introduce infinite new storylines and characters. Just infinite. A few are necessary.
1: Also, if it's already expanding worlds that we know, I'm down with that. If it's adding, like, six or seven completely new New worlds, I'm like, No,
0: that makes sense. That makes sense. Right now, hence the concern about the more Hobbit subcultures. Yeah, I get that. Oh, by the way, and of course, we skipped over when we were talking about Lyndon. Cured in the ship, right? Confirmed for season two. Has been
1: cast. We don't know who yet, but has been cast. Grey
0: Havens. Right now, I'm... Wondering if this means um remember everybody was kind of flipping out about the whole shuttle to Valinor thing mm. in episode one. Especially Gogal's control over it, and we're yeah. giving this as a you know, prize slash punishment mm-hmm. <laughs> right, for people. You get and, to go,
1: you and, get uh, to go. And you know,
0: and it's kind of in his gift, and there's a whole, yeah, exactly. Um, maybe that's gonna change. Yeah. Um as of course, we were forcibly introduced to the prospect of all the elves leaving, mm-hmm. right? So that question of like, it's uh, sailing time for Abandon. the elves, right? Has 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 emerged over the course of this season, and so and now we're told, hey. Cirdan the shipwright um, who is the elf who runs the Grey Havens who makes the ships that sail off to Valinor so the elves can depart from Middle-earth and it's Cirdan the shipwright's boat that Frodo and Bilbo and Gandalf and the rest of them sail off in at the end of the return of the king. So um, and Cirdan is cool because he's the only certified elf with a beard. Mm. He's got a beard. Waiting for the beard. Kierden's beard is going to be.
1: Oh my God. All this talk wait. of beards, and we're going to see it on an elf next. Elf, season. yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, no, that's. I'm telling you, um, you thought people were upset about female dwarf yeah, beards. Here if Kierden is clean shaven. Done. Riots in the streets. <laughs> riots in the streets. So, uh, anyway, yeah, but. but I, so Challenge I, accepted. I, <laughs> that <laughs> sounds the, like fun. The fact that Kierden the Shipwright is being introduced right at this time when we're getting the. I think that the. Uh, like culture of yeah. going overseas sea may, may change. I'm hoping that hints correlates at some change in Gilgalad mm-hmm. as we were
1: mm-hmm. hoping for. So certainly Who more knows. screen time, if nothing else. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. you mentioned Numenor before. Numenor well, definitely yeah. going to have a shift of power there. Yeah, We've for seen sure. Farazon kind of like position himself. Yeah. Into this, I'm going to take your throne. Yeah. Space. I was
0: wondering if he was going to get sceptered at the end of Episode mm-hmm. Eight. Um, Instead, I think they're going to spend some more time with him and Muriel, mm-hmm. and that um, we talked about this. Which I kind of want,
1: to be honest, because I feel like yeah. if he just usurps it, that doesn't fit what we've seen already. Yeah. He seems very loyal. He seems yeah. ready to fulfill that duty. Right. But also well, kind especially of a little power the duty is, Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah.
0: Especially if the people are crying He's still crying a politician. Out, oh, what am yeah. I going to do? Right? It's, yeah, I'm just helping them help themselves and by really becoming like their king. And I really like
1: Muriel, so I think we're sticking with her for oh, a man, while yeah. to keep yeah. that.
0: Yeah. That, uh... Uh, that scene between Muriel and Elendil yes. I think really sets them up as uh, clear allies and partners mm-hmm. uh, in what's to come. My predict, my primary prediction with Numenor is that we're going to get more we, we got, int- again, you talked about foundations, mm-hmm. right? The foundation that was laid in Numenor, culturally speaking, is the sort of modern Numenorian anti-elf, mm-hmm. new ways of <laughs> Numenor. We're rewriting our own history and redefining ourselves by our own and only occasionally complaining about death right right? i think that um and there were implications but they were subtle that there were consequences for being one of the faithful Mm. right elendil's conversation with the kids at the beginning being like let's all be good numenorean people and not get in trouble seemed to suggest that it would be difficult there would be difficulties created if you did that but we don't see persecution Mm. like nobody's you know, being dragged out and beaten in the Maybe street just or anything. ostracized.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But I
0: think, so, well, first we'll get the politics with Muriel and Farazan. Somebody's got to become king now, yeah. right? Um, but in addition, I think that's going to lead to a more active atmosphere of persecution. I was going to say division, Illinois. yeah. I think yeah. it's
1: going to become a lot more of this two-camp thing and that we know that there are potentially other groups In Numenor that are faithful. Exactly. So we're going to meet them and have an acceptance of that. So, yeah. Another new character,
0: expecting in season two, Anarian, probably. The other brother, who was talked about as being in West Numenor and um, being, therefore, one of the faithful. So um, he's the one who is so far like the poster child of the, you know, Mm -hmm. um, real declared faithful movement. Um, And so I could easily see a Pharazonian. Regime saying, I want to crack down on the West Numenorians, they're traitors, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. So, yeah, that's that political stuff mm-hmm. is what I expect to see in Numenor in season two, primarily. Probably not a major intervention back into Middle Earth. Um, maybe, probably some continued trade mm-hmm. and tribute collection, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, uh, which may look like empire building uh, by um, uh And so there may be a, a, an increasingly Interesting, intense relationship between Numenor and the refugees at Pilargir. But um, but mostly yeah. Numenorean politics, I think.
1: We've got to see more of uh, Plantear And what's-her-face? Um, Cutest Nazgul.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, Aryan, yeah.
1: That, though, I... I... I'm happy to go along with, with your, your feel on this, but I haven't seen that yet. It's not yet. my most
0: well-founded
1: thing. No, I just, I don't see anything of her yet. So, like, for all of the groundwork they have dropped in, none of it feels really solid or engaging to me yet. So I hope we spend a little bit more time with her, because yeah. right now it's just, I want to be an architect, and I went up a staircase. That's not enough for me to <laughs> be suspicious. Like, I, a, I just don't... Red
0: flag if I've ever seen one.
1: I just don't Probably see can. her turn in evil yet. I'm yeah. open to it.
0: No, no, no. But Not yet. Yeah. Not yet. No. OK, so my only impetus for this is a little bit based on the show and then mostly um, sort of pure speculation based on demographics. Sure. Right. Um, what we've seen is her her being upset, her wanting to do something that she felt was right and her willingness to maybe do something or encourage to be done something that was not right in order to make that thing happen. And anybody who is subordinating uh, the means to the ends, that's a red flag in Tolkien. It's very small, right?
1: But it's enough to be suspicious. But it's step one,
0: exactly. Is that where she's going? The demographic argument, what I mean by that is we know everybody else, that's an important family, Elendil's family, right? And everybody's got jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, And now... Not only do we know that within the Tolkien world, now we see it in the show. We, know Ale- we see Elendil's job and his role and his connection with Muriel. We know Anarion's job. He's out. He's like the spokesperson for the faithful. Right. right? We know now Isildur's got a job. He's out in Middle Earth, right, going to do... Stuck
1: under a pile of rubble. Being stuck under a pile right. of rubble. Right, Important
0: job. Yeah. So everybody's got a job. ARIAN does not. I mean she's she, going to step up, She's an up, architect though. job, but yeah. there needs to be a role for yeah. her, right? And...
1: The... She needs to be ambitious. She needs to have a drive to push her on. So yes. we know that she was selected of you know, the apprentices, so yep. clearly she has some aptitude. So I right. imagine that is going to be what we see a whole lot more of.
0: Yeah, what I don't see is many more Numenoreans, like named Numenorean characters, going bad, mm. basically. Mm. Like on a trajectory into darkness. Farazon? yes, Sure. Yes, but who else? Kevin? Mm-mm. No,
1: the no. Blanket.
0: Kevin is. Kevin is. I mean, what is he going to be like? I want to. When I grow up, I want to be evil, just like my dad. Like that's not really very compelling. So, um, and besides, that's totally not. But he where also he's wants been.
1: to date the girl that might turn evil, which we'll could see. then become tragic. And yes. I, you know, I, there's, I, some, I think, there's some. There's yeah. some things that could work there.
0: Yes, exactly. Like yeah, I'm you know kind of a. Milk toast, nice guy, but my girlfriend's evil, and now what do I do? Who knows? <laughs> so, anyway, like, again, I'm not saying Arian is gonna like jump straight into, you know, she's not yeah. gonna go kill the younglings in season two, but I think that she's gonna, but that's why I'm, I'm, I'm it's, it's my conjecture yeah. that she may go in that direction, because I don't see many other Numenorians on that path. So, Maybe it'll fit. Somebody's got to. Yeah, sure. somebody's got to. Yeah. That's kind of the basis of yeah. my analysis. And we won't gotta. have the
1: wave yet, but we're obviously going to see more visions of that. If they yeah. showed it this much in one, they're going to yep. have to carry some of those themes through yep. so we know that there's a threat building, building, building. We're yep. constantly existing.
0: And, of course, Muriel is a gr- is in a great way now to take over the Tar Palantir role, maybe mm-hmm. literally live in his apartment up in the tower now that yeah. she's blind, and um, to know now what's coming, and Farazan's not going to listen to her. Um, and so, yeah, the the knowledge of incipient doom without the ability to do anything about it, yeah, that's yeah. kind of what I'm thinking with her.
1: Segwaying to Isildur. Let's Isildur. go to the Southlands. Let's Southlands. Let's go to okay. what's going so, on there.
0: We've got now...
1: Still bugs me we haven't had a closing shot of him. So we are to assume Isildur. that he is still alive in the pile of rubble. Yep. And Barrick is going to find him. Poor Barrick sifting through
0: him. rubble for the next two years. Grabbing an it's apple where he rough. can that
1: has been cast aside. Yeah.
0: Fortunately, somebody left a trail of apples. Right. So that he could be <laughs> fed. People were complaining about this. Foresight. That's what it was. Thoughtfulness. That's what it was. So anyway, here's Barrick looking for a Probably, I mean, we were all expecting that to happen in episode eight.
1: Um, but well, we will see that, and we'll I, see. I think he'll I arrive in the Southlands. Yeah. And he'll have this opportunity to grow as an individual as well. He's not under the shadow of anything Numenorian. All the
0: other leaders left. Yeah. Muriel, Elendil, even Volondil, his friend, who was the lieutenant, right? So, we, we, yeah, it's, he's the only one among and the, and the, 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 the remnant of the garrison. And then, of course, we have the Southlanders. We've got Bronwyn, Bronwyn, we've got Arondir, Rondir. we've got Theo. Yeah. Um, and I love the way in which we're now getting these... Uh, like native southern persons and Numenorean mm-hmm. persons coming together in what really now begins to look like proto-Gondor. Exactly. Living in Pilargir, which will soon be, someday, not soon, be a uh, Gondorian city. And, um, you know, are we going to get the to building water. of, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the what will become Gondor mm-hmm. uh, in time? I did not see that coming. I did not see Gondor being built so soon, especially mm-hmm. by with somebody like Isildur there. Um, it was, I, I think, it was quite clever to find a reason to leave Isildur behind. Um, and especially with the use they're making of it with Elendil's grief, which is very moving. Yeah. And now Isildur's there, and so he can start building Gondor. Great, yeah. I love that. There's still put he's got a job, he's gotta go, he's got stuff to do back in Numenor, but it's not until the last minute, yeah. Right? He can go, but he can stay there for two seasons and still make it back to mm-hmm. Numenor in time to. Uh, do what he needs to do there. Do what he needs to do yeah. there before the before they flee.
1: But we're also in the Southlands and we don't have clear leadership because we don't have the King of the Southlands anymore. So we have Bronwyn, we have Arondir, we have Theo and we have Sildur. Yes, So they are clearly going to become the main players there. Yes. I still think I don't know if it's gonna happen season two, but it would seem appropriate that Bronwyn is gonna get axed. And that's the death turn, of Bronwyn, yeah. And that's gonna turn Theo to the that's dark side. To the dark
0: side. <laughs> uh, with that's, which that's he has been flirting there. continuously. Yes. yes. Which I can
1: understand. So, I mean, he's chosen good. There's all this stuff about fate and choice, and it's yeah. what you do. Yeah. But I think there's going to be a temptation fueled by anger and grief. Arandir?
0: Will... What happens to Arandir? Oh, then? poor
1: Arandir. I mean, probably yeah. dies.
0: Yeah, it's going to uh, be hard.
1: I don't know. I don't have a good read on He'd Arandir. He'd stick with yet. Theo?
0: And then it's double tragedy. And
1: then double tragedy. Man, boy. Yeah.
0: It's rough.
1: We'll see what happens to Ronda. But I also don't have a huge drive on him yet. He's loyal yeah. and he fights well. But I need a little bit more to kind of hang on to that. So we'll probably see a building of their relationship. Well, especially if... takes a dive.
0: The bigger read we got was that he's committed to making it work with Bronman To yeah. Actually, like, that was... He was... The Build-A-Garden. Yeah. Flirting with that. But now we got the Build-A-Garden, right? So now... And there we are. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, look. Think a guard would grow in Pilar here? Here we are. Like, this is... I mean, that's where we're going to begin. And now the question is... Is that, and then what's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? So um, I agree. Yeah,
1: they're building a garden, but it's not exactly a peaceful scenario. Like, not yet. Yeah. Not there's, yet. There's some could be worse, though.
0: though. I mean, yeah, we've got orcs living over there in Mordor, but... so say you could be in Mordor? Well, they're going to stay home, probably, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, Adar... Well, this reminds me. So let's talk about Adar. Yeah,
1: and let's talk about Adar and Sauron. Yeah, what's that dynamic? Okay,
0: be? so Adar is living his best life right now. Yes. Right. I mean, his kids are all out in the yeah. sun, his not kids sunshine. kids are out in the sun, not shining. Right, and uh, and as everybody, right? so we've got orcs frisking merrily around in the. Joyful ash with heaps, him, right? You know, that's it. Everybody's happy with him. He's accomplished what he wants mm-hmm. to do. It makes me wonder if this is what he meant by becoming a god. Yeah. Right, he not that he's his, literally going to no, ascend, but, but he
1: created this world. He's, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. He's going he's, he's to exert the godly power of smiting the sun, uh, carving out this home for his children, and now this and is the retirement is Eden, home. Yeah,
1: because for them it is Eden. It's, a,
0: it's, a, it's the hell for everybody else. Yeah. It's Udun for everybody else, but it's the heaven for the orcs. And wonderful, awesome, great, happy. Re- Adar retires happy, uh, but except there's the Sauron issue, and we know Sauron has eyes on. Mount Doom. um, We know he's there. I believe in the conflict between Adar and Sauron. Um, That really seems to fit Mm -hmm. on Adar, at least. Um, What Sauron's attitude is, I mean, assuming that there was a confrontation and that Adar did stick him with a sword, which Mm -hmm. I gotta say, abdominal wounds... Par for the course, right? Another day for Sauron, another abdominal wound. Right. I'm just saying, but anyway, um, the the yeah. So, but presumably he's unhappy yeah. with him, right? And yeah. uh, and so we, I would expect if since we see Sauron returning to Mordor at the very end of season one. We're going to see that. Confrontation with Adar yeah. seems very likely. Um, and I hope then we the... get
1: longer with Adar because I do think he's a phenomenal character. Oh, man. But I'm yeah. not sure the trajectory that he would have that would work. I feel like the main conflict is going to be Sauron taking his spot.
0: The problem is, again, like, what does he have to live for? Yeah. He's done everything. Tick. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, he's, again, he's like, little, it's like now it's time for cheerful retirement. Um, and, you know, characters that are ready for cheerful retirement. Don't have a long life expectancy, right? Right. I mean, what else has he got to do? Um, so he was, Adar in short, was too successful for his own good mm-hmm. in season one. And now, season two, off we go. Here so yeah, go. I, I suspect, I suspect um, probably Short Leash yeah. in season two would be my guess. I'm hoping not because I also love Adar's character. Adar was for me the surprise star of the show Mm -hmm. of season one. I'm not saying... I I mean, there are other characters that I loved, but he was the one I least expected to love. Expected,
1: yeah. Well, and also least expected. Well, period,
0: yeah. In all
1: the things we saw, we didn't really see him as the big bad. We saw these other things kind of hinting at the big bad with the mystics and things like that. Right. And then you get this character brought in. So that is a big bad. Fantastic. Yeah. So season two's big bad... We've got a few like smaller-level conflicts going on, but I feel like the big bad's going to be that conflict between Adar and Sauron. And he's got he's
0: to bring everything into line. Yeah. Time to heal Middle-earth now, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, agreed. And, and since not only um, do we know that establishing Mordor as his eventual center of power is a really important part of Sauron's story of the Second Age... But he's got, he's got rings of power to make right. and time's And wasting. a lot of them,
1: apparently. Yeah,
0: he's going to start pumping out these suckers. And so he needs Mount Doom. And so this is, he, he and Adar are going to be on each other's turf. Mm-hmm. And um, that almost has to come to a head relatively quickly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's is it. Is that all of them? Yeah. I think so. I mean, yeah. that was the I think list. that covers
0: it. So, yeah, I, I, there's, there's a lot of fun stuff yeah. to look forward to. Um, I, okay, wait, last question. Caliborn season two, yes or no? What do you think?
1: I hope so. I hope so, too. I hope so. I, hope so. I mean, it's been mentioned, so now it's just... I mean, from a story point of view, it's, yeah. it's left hanging.
0: Right. Now and we have, like, Chekhov's husband sitting out there. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Like, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, it's... So that'll so, be brought back yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. If he hadn't been mentioned... I think maybe three or four. Yeah. Right. Um, We're just gonna be patient on that. But that has been
1: dropped in, and he's he's lost. He's He's lost.
0: And that's that's open ended. Yeah. Yeah, Exactly. That's that's gotta that's gotta get resolved. Um, Especially now that she is safely clear of that other potential romantic entanglement, uh, uh, which which really
1: didn't come to fruition. It's okay. Did not. I know. It's all good. Yeah,
0: it's all good. So yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm
1: I'm pretty pumped about it. There's a lot of stuff that I'm still kind of struggling with with season one. I want to watch the whole thing from beginning to end again yep. and watch that yep. overarching arc. But I do feel like every character is now on this trajectory that's real interesting, and mm-hmm. I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to the next
0: one. Yeah, so. the only question is the pacing of the storylines, yeah. and there's some big questions about where things are going. I'm sure we'll be. Yeah thoroughly surprised by some of the things that are happening but um but i am also looking forward to less sort of mystery and confusion and more um now you know now we know these characters um with only a few exceptions we're pretty committed to these characters yeah
1: i mean i hope they hit their stride like you know the the first season of of a lot of series can be a little bit janky when you're right, trying to right. figure out who everybody uneven, is sure, and yeah. yeah so now i hope we're hitting our groove and we can really just kind of settle into this and follow these stories
0: yeah awesome yeah. well it's going to be a lot of fun oh my goodness uh to see what's going to happen so there's there's yeah there's certainly a lot to look forward to um and of course we want to thank you again for coming along with us